0: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Saturday, March 21st, and as with every Saturday, I'm bringing you an extended episode that has all of the week's episodes cut together for your errands, your long runs, although I guess most of us aren't really going out for errands right now. Now, before we get into those episodes... I think that if I had to say the theme of the week from the Bitcoin community perspective is the emergence of a new narrative, right? Over the last couple of weeks, as Bitcoin has largely mirrored equities, as everything has been sold off, there are many who called for the end of the safe haven narrative. Now, this week, Bitcoin has not only stayed flat, it has actually risen a little bit to over 6,000. Now, my general belief is that we're too quick to throw narratives out the window or adapt uh, narratives at the slightest evidence. And so I'm not saying that we need to now tell a story of uncoupling or decoupling as the, the major narrative. However, I will say that there is something going on, I do believe, in wider circles where as governments get ready to inject and print huge, huge amounts of money, right, the the stimulus bill just keeps getting more and more expensive as it's proposed. Uh, People are looking around to say, well, what else uh, offers some different sort of monetary dynamics than that? Uh, This is mostly anecdotal evidence at this point. But Michael Casey, uh, the chief content officer at CoinDesk actually noted on Twitter that CoinDesk had seen a major uptick in its Bitcoin 101 pages. So there is, I think, something going on that's not just, in our community. And I I think that narrative is going to be really interesting to watch unfold. Now, in terms of this week's episodes, we started on Monday actually with a discussion with Michael Casey, as well as Noel Atchison from Coindesk about the government's emergency stimulus plan, right? We saw extraordinary Fed action last Sunday, and Noel and Michael came on to help break it down and really question whether it was going to calm the markets down. Spoiler alert, it did not. On Tuesday, I had on Dan Tapiero. Dan is a super interesting macro thinker. He runs a digital asset fund. He also has been involved with gold for a long time. He's been involved in a huge number of different parts of the market. And he talked about why Bitcoin is really the only truly free market left. So that's one that is uh, I highly recommend you check it out. On Wednesday, we had Bruce Fenton join. Bruce was one of the original canaries in the coal mine for the crypto community around COVID. And he talked about uh, basically whether we were overreacting with this financial stimulus, but also about uh, an open source approach to trying to solve the ventilator problem. So it's a, a really interesting conversation that is pretty wide ranging. Thursday, we were off. And then Friday, we had uh, what I jokingly call the like podcasters social distancing happy hour with Peter McCormick. Um, It was originally going to be an episode that was just about Peter sharing what he'd learned on his travels to South America and to Turkey and Greece recently. Uh, And it ended up being a much wider and honestly kind of more raw conversation about uh, politics and belief systems in the era of coronavirus. So there'll be a lot of you who don't particularly love that episode, not because you necessarily disagree or anything. It's just something a little bit different than what you maybe come here for in terms of Bitcoin analysis and macro analysis. But uh, I I did want to share it. I think it's a, it certainly reflects where both of our heads were. So that's it for this week. Uh, before I turn over to the episodes, I want to share two more things. So last week, as we were coming off really the market starting to grok the, the, the horror of stimulus, and we saw Bitcoin's major crash, I asked a couple people to share their thoughts. And there were two folks who responded who I wasn't able to get their comments into last week's episode. And I think that even a week on, they're really worth listening to. The first is from Jean-Marie Magnetti, who is the CEO of Coinshares Group, and he discusses why Coinshares still believes that Bitcoin is a risk-off asset temporarily trading as a risk-on asset. So let's listen in.
2: Since last summer, the team at Coinshare have been discussing in our macro research pieces what could be the catalyst of the next downturn. A week ago, the conditions for the perfect storm were taking shape the OPEC cartel announced a decision by both Russia and Saudi to go after the shale gas industry in the U.S. This was followed by an inefficient Fed intervention and then the news of an escalating pandemic. News catalysts were added progressively during the week. Coronavirus spreading in Europe, the U.S. decision to ban inbound flight from Europe, CME closing the pit, several central banks attempt to bring stability, albeit in an uncoordinated manner, And finally, a lot of political interference. This led to a third which, if I'm correct, was the first time the nice circuit breakers were used since September 1987. So when the global repricing of everything happens, from oil to stocks, bonds, treasuries and even gold, seeing Bitcoin repricing is not really a surprise, more a consequence of what is looking and feeling like a fire sale. At CoinShares, this doesn't change our investment narrative. We still believe Bitcoin is the risk of asset trading momentarily as a risk on one. The key word here is momentarily. The sharp decline that we have seen in Bitcoin's price has been facilitated and amplified by the amount of leverage available in the ecosystem versus size and maturity. It creates a lot of pressure on exchanges, but also off-exchanges, with the lending desk and OTC desk facing an unprecedented amount of margin call to serve. This brought the DEFI programs to the limit of their models, with some never heard of intervention from the foundations. With all that said, we are most likely at the eve of a new financial paradigm. As we look at a negative interest rate environment, and significant levels of quantitative easing across the globe, the months and years ahead will be Bitcoin proving ground.
1: Now our second clip comes from Corey Klipstein who is the CEO of Swan Bitcoin, which is a new forthcoming Bitcoin-only financial institution. He also has similar feelings where he discusses the bright orange future that is still ahead of us. And especially after we've seen what happened this week with the Bitcoin price and this new narrative emerging, uh, he was prophetic, basically. So let's give that a listen, too.
3: Hey, Nathaniel and friends, this is Corey Korpsten, founder of Swan Bitcoin. And give bitcoin just uh, contributing a few thoughts to what's gone down this past week and uh, what we have to look forward to uh, over the next few months and and years it remains a bright orange future for bitcoin when i think about the implications for people in in our situation starting bitcoin infrastructure companies companies uh, in and around bitcoin you know this is really the time when great stories are started, right? We know that some of the best, probably most of the best companies in Silicon Valley from the last cohort uh, were really forged in the fires of the uh, great financial crisis. And I think it's probably similar here. You know, there's there's less competition. Um, there's more availability of talent that wants to work on companies that are already standing up. And uh, I think you can, you know, as, as has always been the advice in uh, among CEOs and consultants in, in the legacy system and, you know, you, you use market downturns to uh, to take share from competitors and to solidify uh, your brand in the, in the hearts and minds of consumers. And I think, you know, the cohort of Bitcoin companies that exist today absolutely have that opportunity to double down to, you know, continue to go hard through the downturn. And really, you know, thrive when we come out the other side of this. So that's how we're looking at it. You know, I and my teammates, Jan Pritzker, Brady Swenson, and the rest of the crew, uh, we're doubling down. We're working really hard, and uh, we're excited to launch here on March 25th to uh, 49 states. Sorry, New York, but um, you know, we think it uh, it's a it's a great opportunity to give people who are going to be stacking SATS automatically. Uh, a low starting point And, uh, you know, we expect to have some very, very, very happy customers in the coming months and years. Uh, if they start their stacking now with Bitcoin down here in the in the mid four digits. Um, so that's it. Hit us up on Twitter if you have any uh, thoughts for us.
1: Now, as you can see, and this might not surprise you, there is clearly conviction on the part of Bitcoiners around the long-term potential of this asset. And one of the things that's been really fascinating to see is just how strong the the bottom is, right? For for Bitcoin. We've seen consistently for the last couple of weeks that the predominance of transactions on platforms like Coinbase are buy orders, right? People are scooping up all of this cheap Bitcoin that was liquidated by institutions who had to flee to cash. This is an incredibly bullish sign. I believe in the long term, it shows how strong that base of belief is. And frankly, right now, governments around the world and central banks around the world are walking right into one of Bitcoin's most unassailable narratives. So it's going to be an interesting time no matter what. And hopefully the breakdown can help you make sense of it all. But without further ado, let's turn now to the actual episodes. Thanks for hanging out, guys. Stay safe, and I will catch you on Monday. Peace.
0: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by CoinDesk. All right, welcome
1: back to The Breakdown. It is Monday, March 16th, and today we're gonna do something a little bit different. A week ago, we woke up to tweets from the US president that this was just a bad flu, effectively. A week later, we are seeing shutdowns across states and municipalities around the country. We're seeing a massive ratcheting up of financial intervention. And so to just help make sense of it, I have Michael Casey and Noel Atchison from Coindesk here to talk through really everything that's been going on. And so where I think I want to start is overnight, the Fed took a much more significant and more dramatic action. So Noelle, maybe if you could just uh, kind of bring us up to speed with what is happening in terms of regulators or policymakers' response to this crisis that we have.
4: Sure, and I'll start with what happened yesterday and the reason the markets are crashing so much today. Yesterday, the Fed did the only thing it knows how to do, but it did so in a way that ended up having the opposite effect of the desired outcome. Yesterday, the Fed cut rates by a full point and it announced significant support for the markets in terms of liquidity, and also it made it cheaper and more convenient for banks to borrow directly, et cetera. A bunch of measures that on the surface make a lot of sense, but we have to look at the way in which it did it. The Fed does not normally break its habit of its pre-scheduled meetings, but yesterday it made a very drastic announcement on a Sunday. And if any of you are classics scholars, actually on the Ides of March, which may have some there. But on a Sunday, that is in itself kind of extraordinary. And also just a few days after another extraordinary intervention from the Fed. It emptied its bazooka onto the markets by lowering rates to zero. And in doing so, totally spooked the markets that know it doesn't have any more bullets to spend. Not only that, but we also know that the markets are worried about the economy. We're pretty certain that there's a lot more bad news coming. And what will the Fed do?
1: That's a great question. It was what, what will they do? Because the point that you're making, I think, which is quite acute, is that in the context of having no more bullets, uh, where do you go from here? So, I mean, Michael, how are, how are you watching this, this, this new phase of uh, the Fed's response to the,
5: the Corona crisis? Well, it all needs to be understood in the context of the, the type of problem that it's up against, right? So, so, 2008 was a financial crisis. The source of the crisis emanated from the plumbing of finance. And so, When you had sheer liquidity problems within the payment system, and therefore we had things like the commercial paper market breaking down, then the thing that perhaps you could do is throw a lot of money at that to bring liquidity to it because you're resolving that problem. The real problem here is a supply-side economic shock. Right? It's it's how the markets are digesting the actual state of the world, which is going into yeah, like an apoplectic shock. It's just everything is being shut down. You know, your opening it to this session, Nathaniel, just laid it all out. It's, it's a rolling impact on the global economy. That's a supply side problem. It's also a demand problem. It's about the fact that conferences are shifting like consensus is from a big event to a, a virtual one. This has a, a sort of rolling impact on the real economy. It's not clear that throwing a lot of liquidity at financial assets is necessarily going to have anything to do to fix either of those problems. To Noel's point, it's the signaling that actually may be part of the problem here. Very, very nervous environment. You know, markets are not necessarily efficient managers of, of greed and fear, the two forces that happen simultaneously in the market, and they can become herd-like. And if you send the wrong signal, the herd can go in the wrong direction. So, yeah, there's maybe a problem of calibrating the weaponry to the actual task at hand here, and then that raises interesting questions about, okay, if the Fed can do nothing, if it has no bullets, what is it? And, in, and I tend to think there's a lot more that could and should be being done on the fiscal side. That's another discussion.
1: Well, so that, I think that's actually a great point of discussion. And, and Noel, I want to kick it back over to you in just a second. But the, the point that I want to kind of reinforce that you just made was is that they're using a 2008 era toolkit for a crisis that is very different, right? Noelle, is that, is that accurate? And, and if so, what, what might be a better or different response?
4: No, yeah, totally. And to further Mike, Mike's weapons analogy, it's, it's actually not even so much have they run out of bullets, as in were those the right bullets to be using in the first place? I mean, Mike's right. This is very, very different from 2008. In 2008, we had the situation where you had the markets that were threatening to run the economy into the wall. Here we have the economy threatening to run the markets into the wall. The same weapons are just not going to be appropriate. The Fed did do a couple of things that I thought was very interesting on Sunday. And one is the swap lines. I mean, it's unusual. They haven't been using swap lines really effectively for some time. But now with the swap lines, they are basically telling other central banks that we will lend you dollars. And this for a lot of global companies is going to be a lot of comfort. It really is. There's probably some debt being called in as we speak, but this is going to mitigate that. Another thing we have to bear in mind is why the Fed did this on a Sunday, because the main things that they did, the lowering rates and the and the lines and the repo facilities and the the interbank lending, that could have waited until their scheduled meeting on Wednesday. What couldn't wait? That's an interesting question. What could not wait until Sunday? What could not wait on Sunday is signs alarming signs of liquidity just drying up in the market. We saw last week moments where you had bond prices and stock prices going in the same direction. That does not happen. When that happens, you know something is seriously broken in the market. And so they felt that they couldn't wait, not even just a couple more days, to step in and save us. Because if we thought the market was spooked by the Fed dropping rates to zero, nothing compared to how spooked the market would be when it noticed that bond prices and stock prices were both heading down together.
5: The question then becomes, what is it spooked about, right? And this is where what we're seeing is a cascading effect of concerns. So the original concern was supply side shock. That was a very real economy concern. Then it's like a demand side impact of all these events being shut down. So we've got this two sided impact on the economy. The reason why the Fed may or may not, I don't want to speculate necessarily what it's concerned about, that's to to Noel's point, that's what the market's worried about. It typically worries about a breakdown of the payment system, which is essentially a breakdown of the banking system. So are there banks about to go under? You know, is there an insolvency concern? But if that's the case, then it is an interesting manifestation of the problem because it's not as if the solvency of banks itself was the cause of the concern in the first place. It's that people are seeing the multitude of impacts and that there is actually a fear factor in the economy that could bring banks down. So we've heard stories about people de-camping from, New, decamping from New York to the Hamptons and taking out massive wads of cash to take with them, right? So is there a lot on the banks happening? It doesn't seem like that would make a lot of sense because we've now got digital payment systems and we've now got other things to use. And on top of that, again, it's not that banks were the cause of the problem here, but it can be self-fulfilling, right? And that is, that is where this stuff gets into dangerous territory and where really innovative thinking about how to solve the problem, how to solve the problem in a targeted way to tackle what the society needs most right this instant, which is essentially, as far as I'm concerned, to make sure that as many people as possible do not crowd hospitals. That is the priority. We need to think smart about how do we enable that. And some of that is money. It is about making sure that they can live on what they can do by not going to work or whatever. But you know, it's not necessarily throwing a chunk of money at, at, at the markets. Nonetheless, markets are real, markets are important, fear is is a factor. And as I said, it can be a cascading, self fulfilling prophecy. I wouldn't want to be a policymaker in this situation. My goodness, what a difficult, difficult call it is for them.
4: You talk about earning your place in the history books, right? One thing we need to remember, though, is that banks are now much, much healthier than they were going into the 2008 crisis. The Basel Accords have shored up the capital reserves. So the chances of any bank going under now, even with rates at zero, is actually a lot less than it used to be. And we were talking earlier about what else can the Fed do? We should be thinking about that. What else can they do? Of course, they can take rates negative. That has happened in other rather important economic areas. I live in one. But nobody expects them to do that. So the next logical step is going to end up being something probably along the lines of helicopter money, which is in itself kind of alarming for what it could do for inflation. But it highlights what you mentioned, Michael, that This is a payments crisis. This is a payments crisis more than anything else. And helicopter money can keep some of the pipes flowing. And the repos, we should keep an eye on them coming up. There'll probably be some intervention there, as as you said before. That is going to be kept going. However, this does, as you hinted, also open up the opportunity, almost the obligation to think of what other systems out there could help alleviate some of the clogging of the plumbing that is no doubt coming, and at the same time can perhaps reassure some of the population that are being affected by the dislocation that are lockdowns and other constrictive policies that are going to just freeze up supply and demand and then also the economy through all of that.
1: One of the great ironies and frustrations for those of us who have been watching this for a while is that you had a scenario where for the first month, six weeks of this coming in every single day from China and seeing markets not react, right? And actually hitting all-time highs in mid-February. So you had this complete non-response, this complete ignoring of everything going on to shift to today where the only mass scale intervention we're seeing is in the context of markets rather than actually dealing with economic implications, right? Not just, not just kind of the, the financial asset price implications, but real disruption and dislocation of people's lives, and not large-scale attempts around the actual health implications. You still, even as Trump was speaking at the end of last week, acknowledging it at least more than we had at the beginning of the week, you're still not seeing him say this is a national health crisis and actually doing anything about the health aspect of it. And it's hard to imagine that there's not going to continue to be this wide-scale fear and growing, uh, without addressing, you know, all parts of it, even holding aside entirely what we think is the right or wrong policy from the Fed, the fact that it's the the only thing that we're really talking about. It's basically, you know, governors of individual states shutting things down, and Jerome Powell trying to fix it with rates. There's this a- almost like schizophrenia of how we've switched from the markets being insane because they're ignoring it to the markets being insane because the the only intervention is in that context.
5: Well, I think that. For those of us who have spent the last, you know, five, six years thinking hard about how the structure of the financial system might be different with different technological solutions and so forth, you know, this is a really interesting time, right? Because it's precisely the possibility that we've actually framed the set of solutions around a structure that is sort of set in stone and doesn't necessarily need to be that way. But the way you put it, like either it is you know, shut everything down, that's what governors can do, or it is the Fed. But in fact, you know, some of these plumbing problems, you know, these are globalization problems, right? I mean, how, how, do we, how do we deal with supply chains that are jammed up because of, of shutdowns around the world? How do we deal with the interconnectivity of the payments and good delivery systems? And how do we become nimble around that? How do we build Resiliency into our supply chains. And so, if one shuts down, we can go somewhere else. What policymaker concerns should there be for that? I think, you know, whether or not we are all for uh, central bank digital currency or or Bitcoin or whatever, there certainly is an interesting conversation around, you know, central bankers who have looked at the role that central banks might play in having a more targeted approach to, to money management if there were to be a digital solution in play. You know, you've got the idea that it can be a targeted tool. So this is all very speculative. We don't have any of these, these mechanisms in place. So it's not, it's all rather hypothetical, but it's useful to talk about to show where the limits of policymaking lie. So for example, I have a registered wallet of some sort that, that is recognized as somebody who has been laid off because of a shutdown or who really should be at home looking after the kids, but I can't afford to or whatever. The distribution of funds directly to that person through some sort of digital account, even if it is helicopter money, it's almost like targeted helicopter money, right? Rather than fiscal handouts, you know, could actually be effective. The questions about what is inflationary and what what is not kind of become different when we look at the marketplace of, of recipients of those funds from that differentiated perspective, right? It's going to be used differently for different purposes for different people you know, and yes, it feeds itself back into the economy and there may or may not be inflation impacts. I think that to my view, that's not something to worry about right now. Not saying that the Fed's doing the right thing, but but that I do think this is a a supply shock. It may not last and therefore the impact could be quite different. But nonetheless, thinking about how in a moment of crisis we deliver what is needed to people and just uh, approach this from that perspective and then kind of deal with all the economic fallout later, I think is the right thing to do given... How desperate things are.
4: When it comes to policymakers being reluctant to change anything, we have to remember that sentiment, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, sentiment can change hard and fast. I think we can't deny that sentiment has changed really hard and really fast. And policymakers are an extension of sentiment. When public sentiment changes, policy changes as well. That's how finance has always worked. It takes a bit of time, but first the sentiment has to be there, and I think we can agree it is.
1: Yeah, right before uh, we jumped on this conversation, the newswires had Mitt Romney coming out and saying that we should give thousands of dollars to people affected, right? Yeah, which obviously it, it, immediately the Yang memes started yeah. after that. But I said, actually, Romney I
5: think Romney Yang ticket. Somebody somebody joked about a Romney Yang ticket.
1: Uh, yeah, I joked uh, last weekend, I guess, that if Yang got on CNN for his new role, and instead of you know talking about the debates, he just announced that he was coming back in. You could see a a crazy uh, crazy uptick in excitement but i think michael to your point that the overton window around the conversation about every kind of direct government interventionist thing whether it's ubi or mmt or you know pick your acronym right like it feels like it is shifting right in front of our eyes and it feels hard to imagine a world in which those things are off the table and i think to your point the greater the precision of the tools by which we could deploy those things and the more sophisticated the more able to actually have that conversation in precise terms rather than kind of broadly and philosophically right like is it good is it bad it's like well model it out on the basis of being able to actually deploy it in a different way and i do think that's going to be an important conversation but maybe just to wrap up i want to steer us back to implications for bitcoin implications for the crypto markets themselves i know for me personally it's it's honestly it's kind of felt hard to spend that much focus on it when we're still like I said, you know, we're, we're, this is the first Monday where everyone's finally taking this seriously. But at the same time, you know, obviously, one of the, the, the notable hallmarks is that Bitcoin has never been more correlated with equities than it has for the last two weeks. And there's a lot of conversation around what are the narrative implications of that? Are there people who are... Uh, does this diminish or does this uh, reject out of hand the idea of Bitcoin as a safe haven in some way, or as a store of value, or any, any of the narratives that there are out there. And I'm interested in your take on that. And I guess one, one kind of a, a context is I was watching um, Pomp interview Mike Novogratz this morning, and Novogratz was kind of, he's been public about how he was surprised at how correlated Bitcoin has behaved. And he actually thinks that we're going to see at least a 12 to 18 month delay in the narrative of, of the crypto market as a whole when, when all is said and done, because he just, For him, he can't imagine the new buyers wanting to come in when this asset just kind of seems to not be doing what some people at least thought it would do. Now, there's a bunch of different takes on that, but I
5: wanted to see what, what your guys' reaction over the last couple of weeks has been. The narrative around Bitcoin itself, if you think about where it's gone over the last five or six years, has always been a shifting concept, right? We went from it being a payments vehicle to then being sort of digital gold and a safe haven. Now, now what is it? I have always thought that you know, in risk-off moments, that is where you know, everything is, is sell, 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 and the problems of leverage, you've got institutions who are borrowing, not necessarily to buy crypto, but to buy something else, have to sell whatever they can to repay those loans. This mass margin call kind of problem, it was inevitable that crypto would fall in sync with everything else. But I think that then you know, I had thought that at some point what would happen is you know, the dust would settle. And then the narrative would arise that, okay, now that, it, now that everything's sold, what do I want to own as a hedge against you know, the, the potential kind of fallout and breakdown in the way that gold has traditionally been? And it's been interesting to watch the fact that gold you know, has fallen as well, right? So it just is an indication of how scared everybody is. But I do think that whether we call it a safe haven or a kind of a bet on a different world, You know, this is going to be an absolutely transformative event, right? I I, I think the the best analogy is not the financial crisis of 2008. I hate to be dramatic, but it truly is closer to World War II. Hopefully not in terms of the violence that might ensue from it. I don't think that's necessarily the point. But the decoupling of countries, the sort of breakdown of globalization, the sort of disharmony in the world, and the absolutely massive, all-over-the-place shock to the supply chain systems, All of that is going to just leave the world wondering what the hell to do next. And I think in that environment, the dollar as the sort of the fulcrum of the global financial system is really really put into question precisely because of the combination, if you like, of that problem with the fact that there are technological alternatives to that model. At some point in this moment when the world says, all right, what next? Bitcoin starts to, to look really interesting, right? As a, as a digital alternative, as something that cannot be shut down, as something that sort of stands in contrast to the national structures that we're dealing with. It doesn't mean it becomes the world's reserve currency or the world's payment currency or anything, but that it stands there as an alternative to that. Does that, call, does that mean it's a safe haven? Or does that mean that it is a different kind of depoliticized version for what our monetary world is going to look like? When does that happen? I don't know. That's the way I think that we can, can imagine it. I'm sure there's all sorts of other competing theses out there.
4: I have an article coming out on CoinDesk today in which I looked at the last time Bitcoin fell by this much and I compared it to this time. And it's actually really informing. It tells us that it's the market evolution that has led us to where we are today. The last time Bitcoin fell by more than 35% was in April 2013. And back then, it fell by 50%, almost 49% in one day. And that was because it had gone up by three times the previous two weeks or something like that. It was a profit-taking story. Everyone in the market back in 2013 believed in the story. They, they cared about the narrative. Sure, maybe some of them were sellers, but they all had taken time to understand what Bitcoin was all about. And it was an entirely Bitcoin-isolated crash. The S&P did absolutely nothing that day. The, the gold's the same, also flat. But, you know, fast forward to now, and it's not about Bitcoin at all. It's about the markets. It's about panic. And Bitcoin was caught up in the general exit of investors from anything that could be redeemed for fiat. That shows that Bitcoin has grown up. That shows that Bitcoin is now part of the broader financial market. And that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted all along. And this is what happens when it becomes part of mainstream finance. I'm not saying it's part of mainstream finance yet. But that is kind of what we've all been working towards to get this accepted by the bigger funds, to get this accepted by mainstream finance. And so it is going to be caught up in big mainstream events now that it is part of the grown-up world.
1: I think that's a, a great way of putting it. Is it this is part of the natural fallout of two years of evangelizing? This is something that ever if you if you believe get off zero or you know, 1% allocation or whatever, that's it's gonna be one of the things to go to. So I agree with that entirely. So I won't ask you guys for any predictions. Obviously, we are all in uncharted territories, but what are you watching for this week? What signals are you looking at?
4: I'm worried about the funds in the crypto sector and funds broadly. I'm worried about funds because when we start to see big fund liquidations, that sends an entirely different signal. It also does change market dynamics.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking for you know the classic signs of capitulation that you often see in these environments. I'm not sure that that term is as easy to apply to something that is just so multifaceted, and therefore there are constant cas- cascading effects. But in theory, right, everything has its price, and you know, looking whether it is at Bitcoin or looking at just markets in general, you know, there are going to be people saying, "Is this the time to get in? Like, is this is this where there is enough blood in the streets to use that horrible analogy to to buy? Because you know, how bad can it get? And because as a society, we will come together and resolve this. I think this is what's interesting about this question is like, it used to be, don't worry about it, the Fed will solve this. And therefore, that would be the trigger for people to come in and buy. the fact that they knew that the, the authorities would, would be behind it. To our original point, we're not sure that's the signal. You know, I'm seeing an incredibly more cohesive understanding, the world is cutting to understand the actual nature of the problem. And we're seeing social distancing actions and all sorts of things that may well have a significant impact on improving the actual outlook for this, this epidemic. And that in itself, not Fed actions per se, or anything like that to rescue the market, but literally good news around the potential trajectory that this thing might go on, that's the sort of thing that could just be a trigger. You know, that we are actually coming together and figuring these things out, that will be a buy signal. Not that it's the worst is behind us per se, but there's just even an understanding that we've, we do have the resources, that we have the ingenuity, we have the willpower. We have, I you know, could go for ages on that issue. But who's going to get in and buy right now? And what are the signals? I suppose uh, that's the ultimate question.
1: Listen, it's a terrible and kind of cold comfort, but I do think that you can't solve a problem until you admit having one. And at least we're starting this week off admitting we have one. So, all right, guys, thank you so much for your time today. We'll keep checking in on this, I'm sure, as it's uh, not going
0: anywhere. <laughs> Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond, with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The
1: Breakdown. It is Tuesday, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, and we're all inside because the bars and restaurants are closed, which is a good thing. Uh, We are, as a country, finally taking this coronavirus seriously. Yesterday was the day, it seems that we acknowledge that from a medical perspective, today was a big markets day. Just before we recorded this special interview episode with Dan Tapiero, President Trump and Steve Mnuchin got on TV to discuss a raft of different stimulus, and this includes a delay on IRS payments that are going to come due. This includes uh, an attempt to get direct stimulus into the hands of Americans within the next two weeks, according to Mnuchin. The summary of this all was Trump saying they they want this to go big. They don't want to have the same conversation every couple days. They want to go big. So big-time stimulus incoming, which sets up a pretty perfect segue for my guest. My guest today is Dan Tapiero. He is the CEO and managing partner of 10T Holdings which is a new fund designed to own private equity in companies operating in the digital asset ecosystem. He's a managing partner at DTAP Capital Advisors, which is a global macro investment fund that he launched in 2004. And he's also the co-founder and board member of Gold Bullion International. So he's been around this ecosystem for a while. He's been around the macro ecosystem for much longer. And interestingly, Dan's perspective is as someone who has had A number of different encounters with Bitcoin, but really over the last year has come to be a stalwart supporter of its long-term potential. So in our conversation, we talk about his reaction to the most recent announcements from the administration around coronavirus. We talk about the long-term potential of bond markets and how they might be seeding some of their safe haven role and what that could mean for both gold and Bitcoin. And we talk a lot about just What has and hasn't changed in the context of this crisis? And if I had to sum it up, I would say that Dan thinks, in a lot of ways, that the things that he was scared about before in terms of the long term health of the economy haven't gone away. They're just being kicked down the road a little bit to potentially after the election and after a massive wave of stimulus. In the same way, the things that get him excited about Bitcoin as A differentiated new monetary system for the world haven't changed at all either. And in fact, a lot of his mantra is that Bitcoin remains the only true free market in the world. It's a really interesting interview that I hope you enjoy as much as I had fun recording it. Now, a couple notes. One, the quality isn't the best on this one. Uh, We had some issues with the recording software. So just know that going into it. I apologize. I always try to have a little bit higher quality, but hopefully you can deal with it, and like I said, my apologies. Second, as always with interviews, these are minimally edited to better capture the flow and cadence of our conversation. And third and finally, as always, nothing that we discuss should be taken as any sort of financial advice. But with all that said, let's dive into this conversation. All right, we are here with Dan Tapiero. Dan, thank you so much for joining today.
6: My pleasure.
1: We were going to do this conversation and kick it off uh, basically to talk about what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, w- in the markets, particularly in the context of this safe haven narrative uh, around Bitcoin, which was obviously a speculative narrative around gold. But, you know, sitting from where you sit, what have uh, what has surprised you or not surprised you about the last couple of weeks as the market have finally really responded to the threat of coronavirus?
6: well i mean as we were just talking about before a little bit uh i would have preferred of course uh bitcoin not to have gone down to where it is um i don't think it's violated anything in having done so and i would say the same thing about gold um you know at 1530 right now again it touched up at 1700 but within the context of things okay it's down from the high but It's still, uh, if you've been long as a hedge in your portfolio, so if you're, let's just say, a traditional, uh, you have a traditional institutional uh, allocation and you have equities and you have bonds um, uh, and you have some gold in there as well, I think that the gold from a few months ago has held up quite well. Um, I think it might even still be up on the year or close to it. And Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin is is an early... It's an it's an early asset or an immature asset or a developing asset. Um I don't you know I don't really believe that it trades closely in a like tick for tick way. Um that something like gold or bond would, bonds would with, with the stock market. Um the you know, there are all, there are so many different uh developing narratives. Um and sometimes people think that they're developed and you know, they're not. Uh, Bitcoin, yes, there's one aspect to Bitcoin that it acts as a as a hedge, but it's a hedge to, you know, a complete breakdown of the existing system led by a debasement of the currency. Um, you know, uh, um, if we entered a period where the dollar, for instance, had, had started to lose, uh, people had started to lose faith in the dollar, um you know maybe then you'd have some sort of knock-on effect uh, but i don't think you know i don't and then there's that that digital gold narrative as well you know i don't think bitcoin trades tightly with any of those things it's its own thing in its own world and you know it develops uh it it develops over time on its own pace its own rhythm um and if those are just two of the narratives and i've said this before about bitcoin You know, there are probably 18 others um, and that are supportive of Bitcoin that people are not focusing on right now. Um, Look, this was clearly a a margin, uh, you know, a a liquidation. And we've seen this and I've seen this many times before. 97, 98, 01, 02, um, you know, 07, 08, 11, you know, where it's, you know, risk off. Everybody, you know, someone, some of the big hedge funds get uh, margin calls, they're overexposed, they're leveraged, they're trying to make money for their investors on a week-by-week, month-by-month basis, and, you know, they get stopped out, and sometimes these stopouts are severe. And in this case, you know, I think it probably impacted Bitcoin a little bit, um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I think it's just temporary. That these are not, um, you know, these are not the dominant narratives that drive and have driven Bitcoin over time. Um, so it's just that there are periods where, you know, the panic and liquidity and the lack of liquidity and the the VIX up at ninety, um, where people will say, you know, I'm nervous about all my exposure and indiscriminately sell. So um, to your question about hedges, etc. I, I think the bonds uh, obviously worked well, but I think we're entering a new period where bonds probably are not going to act as a hedge for your portfolio in a period where the, uh, you have a protracted slowdown. And that is because I do believe that, there is pro- that, the, that the bonds, and I mean five years and 10 years and 30 years, will have a problem getting below zero uh, if we ever, you know, get down to lower levels, even 30, 40, 50 basis points, I think is strong, uh, is strong resistance for, um, for bonds. Getting yields below there just becomes, it becomes a non-economic, non, uh, I would call it, it's not a business proposition to buy, you know, 10 years at 30 basis points. The the risk reward uh, is dramatically skewed against you. Um, and, I think that that's one of the things over the next few years that we will have to grapple with as, you know, investors in the marketplace, Uh, especially people who have more traditional portfolios where they have a seventy percent, let's say, equity rating, a weighting, and a thirty percent bond weighting. You know, in in a protracted slowdown where equities do not return what they have for the last ten years, uh, your bonds will not act. Uh, as the hedge that they have, because when we get close to that zero yield, they will have a hard time going up anymore. And I think that plays into a new narrative that's developing around gold, which is to say that um, once we recover from this, um, you know, this uh, the the virus spike down, um, which I I, sh- I think will be sooner than than most think in terms of a, a knee jerk back up. Um, I think you. You start to have this discussion about, well, if things slow over a longer period and the Fed continues to pump and we continue to get fiscal spending, what can act as the hedge in my portfolio? And I think gold, uh, in theory, has an unlimited upside, and bonds do not. Bonds—the upside for bonds from here is capped, and so I think that's a that's an interesting new narrative. Um Bitcoin probably benefits a little bit from that too. But, you know, we're both on Twitter and you read a lot about, you know, people complaining about why isn't you know Bitcoin acting as a better head? This is a it was supposed to perform now and it's not performing, so it's failed. I mean all of that is just total nonsense. Um Bitcoin, as I said, it, it 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 it's getting impacted by this stuff. Um, but what's happened, what's transpired by no means, uh, fr- frankly to me, changes anything about the much bigger picture thesis um, that Bitcoin is part of an emerging new uh, value protocol, value layer for the Internet, um, that the ecosystem that's been building up around Bitcoin um, you know, will continue to grow. Uh, it's a very vibrant space. I don't think anything's changed. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I could go on more about that, but I, 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 I think that's to your answers your question about the hedge aspect. Yeah,
1: um, I, I I agree. I, I mean, I think that the a couple of interesting things that I want to tease out from what you said. First is, uh, when we have these conversations about safe havens, we kind of use this term as though it had a, a single specific meaning that we all knew, understood and agreed upon, rather than having inherently both a a, a context, right? Safe haven against what? And two, a, a, a time scale, right? On what time scale? And I think this is a, a lot of what the a lot of the frustrated conversation has been, I thought that this narrative meant that stocks go down, uh, you know, orange coin number go up. Um, and P you know, the, the in fact, the only thing I think in some ways that has slowed that, uh, that narrative, that narrative rebound or relash and, and asked people to take a deeper look has been the fact that other things like gold as well have, uh, have gone down, although cur- clearly not as much as Bitcoin. And obviously that's opened up a conversation about, um, uh, You know, just the dynamics of this particular crash and what it means when everyone has to go to liquidity. I think another point that some have made is that, you know, a lot of folks have been out there for the last couple years evangelizing the idea that uh, big institutions and big holders should have, uh, you know, they should get off zero, right, to yeah. use the, the Morgan yeah. Creek phrase, to, to get that 1% allocation. Well, guess what, in, in a in a difficult time, if that worked, and those people got bought in, even if, and this is, I think, a really important piece, too, even if they have incredible conviction, uh, you know, sometimes your conviction doesn't matter, and you just have to be able to cover your obligation, right? Obligation outweighs conviction in the short term. And so, uh, so there's, the, I feel like in in the, the the one narrative upshot is that in the same way that uh, this may be shaking out kind of um, some some short termism uh, in, in in the 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 market of Bitcoin holders, it's also just allowing us to get to a slightly more sophisticated conversation about what these narratives actually mean, uh, which I think is important for the long term development of this asset. So but then the question comes and this I guess is the other piece of uh w- what you were discussing is uh what happens on the other side of this right because that's really what you what you're talking about when you talk about um uh a new narrative emerging around gold or, or other safe havens when when bonds can't act in that way any further, you know, so just before we recorded this, uh, President Trump and Steve Mnuchin came on to uh, yeah. and did a press conference about their, you know, th- they literally used the phrase over and over and over again, we want to go big. Uh, on, right. on the stimulus, right we don't want to have the same conversation every couple of days we want to go big. It seems to me that that's sort of what you're discussing when you're saying there's going to be there is going to be this other side, and on the other side there's going to be a new set of narratives emerging that potentially position these assets in in a pretty different way
6: yeah um, look i I will say one thing about your comment about short termism like i I think that uh, attempting to trade bitcoin in the short term uh is impossible and you know people who do it well that's wonderful and i'm happy for them um i've traded hundreds of assets over the last 30 years on every time frame you can imagine and i I just think bitcoin at this point is you know as the narratives are still developing it's not clear what it trades off of uh on a short-term basis uh and so I, I think it's just hard to know. I think, it, you know, m- most people will end up losing. I think the only strategy is to get off zero, make your allocation, if, you know, in the, in the case of uh, that, uh, you know, that narrative, get off zero to go to 1%. Um, you know, I think, I think institutions should be doing that now. Um, I think 5000 is, is is a fine price. I think looking at this and trying to figure out why it moves moment to moment and, you know, who's pushing it, or this guy who runs this exchange is driving this or that, I think that's pointless. Um, So having that stepping back and having that medium-term perspective, um, that, that to me is the only way that you can have a successful allocation here. In terms of going forward, look, the one thing that's very clear to me is that You know, Trump does not want to lose this election. Um, I thought even a month or two ago and on Real Vision, September or October, I did a short little interview for Raul, not the Bitcoin one, but another one on macro, where I said, look, uh, you know, the market may have some bumps uh, early in the year, but um, I think going into the election, Trump will throw everything at it. So now that's what's going on. And they have a lot of levers to pull. People who say, oh, the Fed's out of bullets, uh, that's complete nonsense. Uh, they went to zero. Uh, but there are many things that they could do. One helpful thing would be if they, for instance, were able to peg the mortgage rate, let's say the 30-year mortgage rate, down at one5 or 2%. The spreads of mortgage mortgages to treasuries have blown out back to the levels of, of 08 That's clearly inappropriate, I think. You know, a one and a half or two percent peg mortgage rate uh, would do wonders for the population. Um, You know, there's so many things they could do. As you said, they just came out um, and they say they're going big with all sorts of, you know, fiscal, uh, 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 pulling all sorts of fiscal levers. Uh, I I just I, I, I think it's bad now. You know, things are shut. I'm here in Greenwich, Connecticut. And, you know, I was in the city recently and it is closed and there's a curfew in New Jersey, which seems crazy to me. But, you know, uh, activity is is really stopping. Um, On the other hand, my friends in Hong Kong are all back to work. uh, And the same thing on the mainland, more or less. And we've gotten through this virus in China with, let me just say, only 3000 deaths. That's out of 80,000 cases in a population of one point three billion. People say, oh, well, they they were very quick to handle things. Well, regardless, a month ago, everyone was thinking there would be hundreds of thousands of Chinese who were going to die. Well, the the number ended up being 3,000, and the cases now are very small. So I understand we're still sort of in the early part of this, um, but there are a lot of things that Trump will do to hit the system in the short to medium term. So I would not be surprised um, if the markets were to stabilize and do significantly better. Um, maybe not as of today, but potentially, you know, there's a chance that the low is in uh, for Bitcoin at 3,800 for the S&P. Um, I don't really I don't think there's much value for me in, in you know, making a call. I don't get anything out of it. You know, I manage. Oh, my yeah. Portfolio. <laughs> and you know I, I i don't need to do that um but certainly over the next few weeks uh I think there will be enough pipeline stimulus monitoring fiscal that things could stabilize and trump uh will have as i think will have as good a uh a backdrop into the election as he's gonna as he's gonna need and want look he's he's the first president that I know of. That I remember, who, 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 who you know, actually knows where the S&P 500 is, who, who has an actual view on interest rate settings, you know, people hate this guy. I, I get they don't like his character. I get all that. Um, but, you know, put that to the side. And if you look at his comments about, you know, the Fed, he's been right on. Powell, Powell has been asleep at the wheel. I think he's been one of the weaker Fed chairmen that we've had. Um, not really that sensitive to, to the markets in a, on a live, uh, real-time basis. He doesn't really – he didn't really have a macro – a strong macro markets background. I mean, people can argue about that. Um, and you see Trump pressuring him, and in, in most cases, he's been right on. He may not like his delivery, but he's been right on. So I think that, uh, you know, my bet is he's going to – Make sure things are humming into the election. I'm more worried about after the election uh, and and next year. And I and I have been. Remember, a lot of the uh, a lot of the market uh, action was 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 happening before the virus hit, right? And I think what made this doubly bad was the oil shock and. You know, it may not have been as bad uh, as it was. I mean, to have the second worst day in the history of the Dow, right, that down 13% day, uh, VIX at 90, um, that's, you know, that's that's destruction of wealth. That's destruction in liquidity. The credit market's more or less seized up. Things were not trading. That's bad. It might not have been as bad without, you know, without that one-two whammy. And then, as we know from last year, um, you know, things were already starting to slow down. China was slowing down as a result of the, uh, you know, the trade uh, games being played back and forth. Europe was slowing. Um, It's just this was a catalyst to really create a panic. And so I think, you know, we will be through this uh, more quickly. And and you know what? If they've overdone the stimulus in the next few weeks, that's just fine, right? You need short-term measures to offset what will be a massive contraction in GDP. The central bank, you know, should be doing – and I I think right now more or less is doing what it should be doing. Um, It can be more aggressive, um, but uh, I think it it is – the central bank's really – This is one of the main reasons that a central bank was invented, which is to lean against, you know, exogenous, non-economic bolts out of the blue, and this is one. So um, I'm a little more positive, you know, on like a three- and six-month view. I think, you know, potentially a little more turbulence here. Um, And if things, if I'm wrong in the short term and things get a lot worse. Uh, you know, there's still levers that we can pull. And I floated something yesterday on Twitter that I always think that the officials have in their back pocket, and Trump has mentioned this, and he mentioned it last year, is that, you know, they could make an explicit policy change on the dollar. The dollar has been too strong. Uh, It's been overvalued uh, for a while based on any metric. Um, And... You know, I think if you, if 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 Trump and he's mentioned this before, uh, I tweeted this article that came out last year that went into, you know, his view about this um, and and how it would work. But you know, not that difficult, not that long ago. uh, Well, maybe I guess it is long ago now. But in the '90s and 2000s, there used to be intervention in the currency markets all the time. Um, You know, if 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 it's really bad and you know, the strong dollar uh, is, it, you know, is a reflection of deflationary pressure. Um, and if it's if it's really continuing to go up, uh, I think they could reverse and make a strong statement and inter, in, even intervene in the dollar and sell dollars and they could sterilize them or unsterilize them. I only mention that just to say that there are a lot of tools out there and they weren't on it let's say a month or two ago and they are on it now so i think that changes the risk reward dynamic of owning assets generally
1: so for for those who haven't kind of gamed this way out the way you have um, tell me just a little bit more about why, why, why your worry is—it sounds like more fundamental, right? After the election, when this uh, has passed, or at least you know, mostly passed, or it's become contained, what, what makes you nervous uh, in that longer-term horizon?
6: Well, I think that because I have, I've had a strong belief, and I still do, that Trump pulls forward a lot of stimulus into the election, and we sort of have a hangover afterwards. Like, you know, it's – and and look, you see it with the Fed, too. The Fed is doing a lot, and I think the pressure will be on for them to continue doing it. You know, let me just say one thing about the dollar again. I mean, a year ago, if you'd said to me, okay, the Fed is going to cut to zero, and again, in that interview, I suggested that two years could probably get down to 40, 50 basis points. This is in October, okay, October, November, and – You know, I was sort of on a similar theme, but not as cataclysmic as Raul, Um, but, you know, still pretty, pretty, uh, uh, pretty focused on the slowdown. Um, You know, I would have said the dollar would have started to weaken with a zero Fed funds rate. I think the fact that it it hasn't weakened um, just tells you that there isn't enough liquidity out there. So for me, like I, I will know that policy is weak and that liquidity is plentiful and that dollars are plentiful when the price starts to go down of the dollar. And so I'm still kind of nervous about that, that um, that that's how we'll know that stimulus is hitting the system. I don't, I, do you follow what I'm saying there vis a be the dollar?
7: That, yeah, yeah. But let's.
1: Um, play it. Play it out a little bit. So I, I want to make sure one of the things that I'm trying really hard to do with this podcast is, yeah. you know, uh, one of the things I love about Bitcoin is that the audience comes from every different background, right? And so there's a lot of folks who uh, are not from a financial or a markets background. So uh, I don't think we could you can over explain for 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 our purposes.
6: Okay, um, you know what would that mean vis-a-vis Bitcoin? I mean, look, it should be generally positive, but you know, I hate to try to link macro, a macro uh, uh, action or activity or event or price action directly with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin is good for many, many different reasons that have nothing to do with any of this stuff. And trying to trade Bitcoin off of Fed easing or, you know, the dollar or all this stuff on a shorter term basis, I just, I just don't think works. Um, I do think that there is some connection with gold in a way. Um and I think gold is entering the next phase of a big bull run. Um yeah. And and part of it will be that I think bonds again in a way they're in the next year or two I think cease to become an asset class in the way that we've known it. Um that they're losing their uh, you know their function as a hedge, but also um, you know the asset class will become unproductive right like no one no one is buying bonds ten year bonds at minus fifty basis points, expecting to make money so you know at thirty basis points, I just don 't know who's going to be buying bonds, government bonds at those yields, and um I think you know that's a that's a that's a place where bitcoin potentially i don't think you know look gold is a ten trillion dollar asset class um you have you know almost sixteen seventeen trillion dollars of of negative yielding debt um you know if gold prices were to double, you have a twenty trillion dollar asset class. Bitcoin is just too small right now to matter in that framework in that world um but look, I I think you know I think we can get to a price of two three hundred thousand dollars uh, on Bitcoin in you know ten years from now. Uh, Long term, I'm I'm super bullish, and you know sometimes it will it will trade off of these macro things, and sometimes it'll trade off of other things. Um, you know, look, I think for instance, Bitcoin has tremendous value as a security network. You know, and I I talked about this in that interview, uh, a truth machine. You know, there's nothing like this that has ever existed before. How do you put a value on that, you know, vis-a-vis bonds or gold? Or these are traditional assets that, you know, where cash is deposited. Um, Bitcoin is the future. It's, uh, you know, um, know, I I mean... as I said, I, I think there are probably twenty different things that go into uh, that that could go into valuing or or in trying to come up with what Bitcoin is worth. I think there are twenty things you could add up um, to equal that value, and those twenty things have nothing to do with all the other assets, right?
8: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
6: you know, the first really truly global asset, you know, with rails uh, across the entire world, uh, the ability for it to replace SWIFT, which is a pre internet, you know, payment uh, system. I mean, it's a joke that we still use SWIFT, ACH, all that stuff. Um, You know, the Bitcoin network, I think, eventually replaces all of that. That's worth trillions of dollars, right? I mean, imagining building something from scratch that is gonna replace the existing payment system. I mean, that's, it's, it would cost trillions of dollars. Um, so that kind of proposition has nothing to do with the macro. It's just that it's early, right? And it just, at some point, Bitcoin trades off of certain things and other times it trades off of other things. Um, and I think trying to figure out what that is in the very short term is, is nearly impossible. So
1: it sounds like if if I had to sum up your feelings almost kind of across the board about the different things that we've talked about today a lot of it has to do with this uh the the fundamental things that you had been worried about before this coronavirus uh Crash are are still in place, just as a, a incorporating more of a, a stimulus hangover, and the fundamentals of what gets you excited about the assets that you're excited about, including Bitcoin, are also still in place, even if they're you know now have to wade through this from a narrative and a real perspective as well.
6: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and you know if we hadn't had the virus, uh, we still would have had the oil shock, and I'll tell you, I mean. I don't know, you don't hear more about this, but the combination of it, I mean, that oil basically halved in a matter of weeks, and, you know, (laughs) we might have had maybe not quite as much destruction, but uh, we would have had a wipeout regardless, I mean, if there had been no virus, just on that. Um, I mean, it was a direct attack by Russia and Saudi to put our frackers out of business. I mean, it's you know, and and look, if if there hadn't been the virus to focus on, we would have been hearing a lot more about that. The fact of the matter is, the two together was certainly enough to create this wipeout. Um, but I think there are offsets, right? We are doing things now. The Fed was delayed. The U.S. the the Treasury and Trump were a little delayed um, with stimulus measures, but again. In, in the short and medium term, policy action can really work. So, you know, maybe all of this was just pulled forward. Um, you know, we were slowing, things would have corrected. It just became more severe and our response will become more severe. And so I think that uh, we're right in the teeth of the most panic the most panicked moment. And I, I look, the VIX at 90 says that I'm not, you know, I'm not uh that's as, as 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 panicked as everyone was at the bottom in 08. You know, could it go higher? Sure. It could go a little higher. You know, would I bet on that? No. I wouldn't bet on that. And I think from here, um the authorities are are, you know, they're on top of it. You saw Minuchin in that uh in that press conference just now he he was uh, you know itching to get off to go do his work and i'm sure he's on the phone with all the, the relevant players on wall street you know all the relevant players in, at the fed and around the world and they get it this is this is this is the time when a centralized government response is needed um and is actually is actually valid, you know. I'm a small government guy. Um, you know, I'm a, a a less is better. And uh, but this is, you know, if there ever were a valid reason for big government, this is it, right? So um, I think we're going to be all right.
1: All right. Now, one final uh, question that I had for you, or one one final point that I wanted to to discuss. You had a tweet the other day that absolutely popped off that was about why Bitcoin is so different in the fact that it was going to just continue on regardless of, you know, it didn't need government intervention continue. Could you share a little bit about what what inspired that tweet and and maybe just a little bit more on it?
6: Yeah, I mean, look, I think, um, again, I've been involved in the markets for 30 years. And I remember when markets more or less traded freely. Or as much as they could. Certainly in the '90s, um, when there wasn't as much intervention, I think there's tremendous government intervention in the traditional markets all the time, all over the place. Whether it's um, whether it's uh, directly or whether it's uh, stealthily, um, and Bitcoin, to me, and I said, is 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 the only truly free. Um, you know, few, a free market, the only asset class that trades freely without government intervention. And, you know, some people said, oh, well, you know, so-and-so, uh, you know, inter, um, you know, manipulates Bitcoin and there, there's a whole group of people out there, the, you know, the whales, they, they manipulate it. That's not the point. There are always bigger players in markets that, that can move markets. What What I was saying was that, you have something like Bitcoin goes down 50% in two days, okay? And it's stabilized. And I think it, that was probably it. The fact that it could stabilize um, and still be, what, 30% above, below from last year? I mean, where did it trade last year? 3,000?
1: Um, mm-hmm. It got down to 3,400 or, 3, or
6: something. It's, it's still, what, 40 50% above where it was. Um, without any government intervention, it just shows you how powerful it is. Um, and it, it is, the, I, I think, the only truly free trading market. Um, I, I think that's important. If the markets were to close, the other markets, now I don't see this now, but if things got really bad and they decided to shut the markets for a few days, Bitcoin would not close. You know, Bitcoin will be 24-7. I think that would be a very powerful indicator. Um, to people around the world to show its strength. So, anyway, I just, you know, a lot of people, especially the short-term people, complaining that Bitcoin had failed, uh, that it hadn't, you know, it, it hadn't achieved its, its, its function, which was to act as a hedge. All of that, I think, is nonsense. Um, it, it's a free trading asset. Uh, it will trade to the price that it wants to trade um, based on what players in the market want to do and there just aren't there aren't markets like that in the world anymore so people should be aware um that you know it's it's stability and it's recovery even at this price uh are a positive sign so that was my second
1: I couldn't agree more. I think it's a, a another really powerful reminder of uh the same theme that we discussed before of of fundamentals, right? And what uh what short-term shifts make you think about fundamentals and fundamentals are different than narratives, right? It's not a narrative that Bitcoin changes all trades all the time. It's just the truth. And in fact, uh the fact of it itself in some way provides resiliency against narratives, right? I saw a bunch of people pop up right away and said, "Hey, maybe uh crypto needs circuit breakers." the other day. And
6: well, that is a yeah. terrible idea. And I saw the guy who suggested that he probably had a horrible mark-to-market in his fund. But you know what? That's the old world. That's the old legacy fiat mark-to-market week-to-week nonsense. This is this is a much bigger structural, once in a generation if more uh, type of uh, asset and type of development. So. I think I think wow. that would be a horrible idea to start imposing, uh, you know, um, uh, limitations on Bitcoin from the legacy world.
1: I I tend to agree, and I think a lot of folks do as well. Uh, well, Dan, thanks again so much for your time. It's been a really great conversation, tons of food for thought for our listeners. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to hear more on about Twitter. your thoughts on on all this?
6: Twitter, where the uh... Where the Bitcoin, uh, you know, where the Bitcoin crypto world lives, right? I mean, there's yeah. no, that, that's where it is. It's all on Twitter.
1: Uh, and this man is at DTAPCap, and we'll share this in the, in the post as well. So thanks again, Dan. I really appreciate the time. Great chatting. As I mentioned in the beginning, I think Dan has a very different perspective than many of the commentators I see watching the markets right now not least of which in the fact that it's a a much longer duration sort of opinion. I think it's informed by a a longer longitudinal look at things than just what's happening right now. At the same time, I think that we might find that depending on how markets react to this raft of stimulus, he might end up looking more like a leading indicator of some of the narratives we're about to see. So in any case, uh, really interesting stuff, and I really appreciate Dan's time and uh, him taking the time to be here. That's it for today's episode of The Breakdown, guys. I'm going to continue to be breaking down what I see as the larger context in which not just crypto and not just Bitcoin, but everything is operating. So until tomorrow, I hope that you are having a great time social distancing. Happy St. Paddy's. Catch you soon.
0: Welcome back to The Breakdown an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Wednesday, March 18th, and yesterday, as we discussed on my show with Dan Tapiero, was a huge day in terms of government announcing stimulus. President Trump and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin basically said that they wanted to go big, and that meant huge amounts of direct intervention in terms of both saving businesses as well as in terms of getting money into the hands of regular people. Now, this has had a fascinating effect of blurring previously unholy alliances when it comes to political positions. There has been huge blowbacks in terms of the idea of bailing out companies that spent a huge amount of their cash over the last few years on corporate buybacks, and for a lot of Bitcoiners, this validates a prophecy that when times got tough, we were going to turn to the government money printing machine to hopefully help. Now, there are a huge variety of perspectives on what the government should be doing and how, but on this show, I wanted to have a conversation that wasn't just about the hot takes on that, although there's plenty of that in the next coming few minutes. But also about what alternatives are, I asked Bruce Fenton to join as someone who has been both sounding the alarm on coronavirus for a while, as well as someone who is taking action through open source networks to address specific problems in the larger context. In his non-corona life, Bruce is the CEO of Chainstone Labs, he's the founder of the Satoshi Roundtable, but in his corona life, he is leading the ventilator subgroup of the ncoronavirus.org organization, which is an effort of the New England Complex Systems Institute. So, an open source network of scientists and thinkers and lots of different folks from lots of different walks of life. This conversation is about a few things. First, we do discuss a voluntarist alternative to government intervention. Second, we talk about just where in our awareness cycle we are and what we might be able to expect next. Third, though, we talk about this work around ventilators and trying to address a potential and likely shortage of ventilators that will be needed to actually address the health side of this dynamic. Bruce makes a pretty impassioned case for how open source networks can address this type of challenge. And when I ask him at the end of the interview where in his pessimist or optimist cycle he is. The optimistic side of him is that these types of open source networks might have a more privileged, important place in the society and the economy that comes out with us on the other side. As usual, we've only edited this podcast very slightly, and so I hope you enjoy. All right, we are here with Bruce Fenton. Bruce, thanks so much for joining.
9: Thanks for having me.
1: So as we were just talking about, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of use the show to look at the uh obviously the economic impacts of coronavirus uh a, a, you know, not just in the context of Bitcoin, but more broadly as well, but also just try to keep abreast of the the situation as it is moving, right? because we're dealing with a situation or a, a crisis that is a health crisis, a financial markets crisis, and a real lived economic crisis all at the same time, which is part of what makes it. So challenging and increasingly a a foreign policy crisis, I think, too. So where I wanted to start is you were one of the voices, you know, leading the crypto community earlier in saying that, hey, this is a real thing and you should be thinking about it. You should be paying attention to it and you should be preparing for it. How do you see, where do you think we are uh, in general now in America in terms of that response and preparation?
9: Well, I, as I sort of feared, we Tend to have an uh, overreaction a lot of times in America. Uh, I did see this coming. I saw it coming as a as a crisis because the the way that the virus works is that it tends to overload healthcare systems. And there's just and you know the the number of deaths, the number of severe cases, all of these kind of factors made me realize pretty early on that this isn't something people are just going to let continue. There's no way people are going to have cities. Uh, you know, hospitals in their cities that are that are collapsing, doctors getting sick, loved ones getting sick, without um, you know really demanding you, you know the kind of uh, widespread actions that we've just seen recently. Um, so unfortunately, I, I'm afraid now that the government is probably in a in a position where they're overreacting, and that can cause uh, even worse problems than than the virus itself. So we really want to be careful about that. But, you know, clearly everybody knows it's serious now for whatever reason, uh, whether they're concerned about government or concerned about the health, or concerned about the economy or, or all of the above, like you said, you know, there's, um, there's now uh, increasing foreign policy issues and other things. So it is very serious. And it's unfortunate, uh, to be sure for a lot of people.
1: So when you say that you think now the government is overreacting in which context specifically
9: Well mostly with the um, radical printing of new money I, I kind of saw that coming I think two weeks ago I predicted hundred billion uh, and a lot of people thought I was nuts they said 100 billion you know that's crazy yeah, and that's
1: and I, crazy that's crazy that's never going to be enough
9: <laughs> right, well, yeah right around right around then I yeah. said I said well I predict 100 billion in a month I predict a trillion in the year. Well, now we're past. We're at something like three trillion already. Two, two and a half. I mean, they're they're talking about another two and a half. Uh, Fed has done has said that they're going to do five hundred billion in repos a day. Um, you know, they basically already printed. Uh, you know, something like ten times the equivalent of the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies. You know, so it's really radical. And you know, as I said a few times lately, um, bad economics don't make a problem better. You know, bad economics don't make a problem better. It's, it's like it's like somebody losing their job and saying, well, I'm, all right, I lost my job. I have no choice but to go uh, do some online poker. No, that's a bad decision. It's a bad decision before you lose your job. It's a worse decision after you lose your job. Things like UBI and all these corporate bailouts and printing new money, it's bad economics. We need a strong dollar more than anything right now. We need it more than ever. We need strong economics, good economic policy, and I'm afraid that, you know, maybe your listeners will listen to me, but I think people will ignore me even more than when I was uh, claiming ri- uh, warnings about the the COVID virus uh, uh, crisis. I was worried about this, and you know, some people listen to me, but I, don't, you know, I don't think any. I don't think I have any hope of getting, you know, the real decision makers to listen to me on on sound economic policy because they didn't understand economics before the crisis. And now they're scared. So they're going to be doing uh, even worse things. So I am worried about the economics for sure.
1: This feels in some ways inevitable. It's just kind of the end conclusion of the nature of politics right now. And it's, it's, it's interesting because there is total across the board consensus, so much so that uh it's now almost a competition of who's ver- who gets to claim credit for it from the political scorecard perspective. You know, like that's that's what I I I have been noticing. Yeah, we've been I I mean, visiting
9: I, the White House and and Romney supporting it with right along with AOC. It's it's uh it's crazy land.
1: Yeah yeah, it it it's interesting. I mean, I you know, the 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 best hope is that there's some amount of interesting conversation, at least, that arises from it that we kind of uh, advance. But you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that there are most people who think that there's any uh, any any reality other than and than something like this through, especially because of the impact on. Uh well I, I think two things one politicians are seeing that they feel like they have to not allow these companies to fail and they also watched the the way that 20, 2008 bailouts created the entire kind of political context that they're operating in you know from from uh from uh, Occupy Wall Street to you know to Trump to you name it and uh, and they're just there's no way that they can bail out businesses without feeling like they're doing something that they can claim as a bailout of, of main street as well.
9: Right. Right. Exactly. And, um, you know, we did create this moral hazard in 2008 and other times where we said, Hey, if you're in trouble, the government can come and save you. And I knew, I knew they, the government was going to come save. and even as a, um, you know, free, free market economist type of person who is very against these, I was, I was never in favor of it. But in the darkest days, you know, a week ago or so, I, I was, you know, there was some little piece saying, you know, maybe, maybe the government, you know, could, could help. That's sort of the bargaining stage of grief. And, and, you know, fortunately for me, I understand economics, so I never actually embraced those ideas. But a lot of people just don't get the economics. So in times of fear, they, they, they just scream, you know, do something, do something. And uh, you know the politicians, right along with the, the the companies and the citizens, all think that these you know bailouts. You know, wh- where did it? We, anyone ever get the idea that we should be doing a bailout? You know, to say, well, uh, you know, Boeing's in trouble. We need to help them. Why? Why do we need to help them? And if you do need to help them, is giving them money a good idea? Why not? Why not go? If you really, I mean, it would. I still wouldn't probably support this, but if the government um really wanted to help the 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 a better way to do it would be to uh, increase purchases just just go and start buying things um and then you then you get the wheels of the economy greased but to just give money away to either companies or even individuals is just it's just uh unfortunately bad economics
1: so i think that uh there's a lot of folks who are against uh, bailouts for corporates, but who are more open to the idea of temporary economic relief, right? Like, the, w- there's there's a couple different problems uh, for folks that are nervous about this. One is how uh, is is the possibility of temporary economic relief uh, in the form of direct checks to Americans becoming permanent expectation. But the, the the second question, I guess, is just what is what's the right approach to you know potentially 20 percent unemployment uh, almost overnight, if not something like that. You know, what, what's the what are the counter policies? That, that are just not being discussed because we've gone so quickly to this sort of direct intervention model.
9: Right. Well, there's uh, Thomas Sowell said, the, you know, who's a great economist for those who don't know him. Um, he said, there's no, there's no good, something like um, no good solutions. There's only uh, trade-offs. And so there is certainly, I have no magical answer, but I do know that better economic policies would make sense. And that it sounds cruel, uh, to say the government shouldn't do anything um, because people say, well, you know, hey, well, how do people pay their rents and so on? But giving everybody thousand dollars actually makes everybody thousand dollars poorer because we're we're taking that in aggregate from everybody else. So the so the country is is basically thousand dollars poorer per person, and uh, we're weakening our economy. So we're we're making bad economic uh, trade offs and co- sort of a shell game to put imaginary money from here to here sort of makes you feel good a little bit. And if you're on the lower end, certainly paycheck to paycheck, you know, you're working a, as a busboy in a, in a restaurant and your, your wages just went from 15 bucks an hour to zero. Yeah, of course, it seems like it hurts you, but um, we have to think longer term than that. You, you know, it doesn't help you because it gives less of a chance of the restaurant becoming able to rebound. It becomes more of a chance of people trying to extend these things. Uh, you know, just very, very bad economics. So the way that economics are supposed to work, and it does sound cruel because, like I said, there's, it's all trade-offs. There's no great solution. But the way that economics are supposed to work in times like this is that it, it trickles down and up from, from the individuals. So the individuals say, you know, hey, landlord, I uh, don't know if you've seen the news, but we're in a little bit of a mess here. And I'm not able to pay my rent this month. And the landlord says, I kick you out? No, not, not likely. Most landlords would say, oh, man, I know. And the, the building, uh, you know, there's 80 other people in the building like you. And the building manager's on my case about it because I'm not giving him the money that we were supposed to. And then the building manager goes to the bank and says, hey, bank, uh, you know, we, we're not paying our mortgage this month. And, and in the old days, the bank would say, all right, I got gotcha. you. This, this is a problem. We get it. We're going to add those payments on. We're going to give you three months off you add those payments on the end and everybody works it out in voluntary agreement, the landlords, the tenants, the bank, the, the, the workers. Um, That's the way that these things uh, work. And those are fairer ways because there's more people with skin in the game. There's more people making trade-offs. It's more voluntary agreements. Those agreements can be one-offs rather than just blanket statements. You know, wealthy people don't need the thousand dollars. Um, you you know, I'm fortunate enough that I don't have, I'm not facing an issue with, with my immediate rent in my house. So I wouldn't, I'm going to continue to pay my rent. I'm going to continue to pay my employees uh, for as long as I'm able to. Um, So, so that can, that kind of socializes the risk a little bit more. You know, I, I'm going to my landlords, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, between businesses and stuff, I have a few different landlords I deal with. Uh, I'm going to go and say, Hey, you know, I get the times are tough, I'm going to keep paying kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? It should be negotiated out by people. And that goes for work and everything else. And what government should do is really get out of the way of anybody who needs to make money doing anything, anything that doesn't harm others or or violate others' rights, we should get out of the way. So if we're telling people they can't go to work at their restaurant, we we should have You know, no rules about, you know, can they deliver food from there? You know, can they make a can they make a meal outside somebody's door and you know go to a large apartment and set up a table and and do a food truck, whatever, anything that people can do to make a living? Government's got to get the heck out of the way because those people need jobs. And the more people that do it who are providing goods and services that people want, that's what's going to make the economy healthy. And that's what's going to rebuild
0: us.
1: Yeah, I would say that that some of the most encouraging actions have been those restriction loosenings, you know, in terms of which restaurants can deliver and things like
8: that.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from a free market standpoint, you know, there there's probably not a lot of silver linings to this. But one hopeful benefit that comes out of it is that they tear down some of the you know, dumb laws that make it so, you know, there's just so many different things, you know, oh, you can't deliver milk unless you have a milk license, and you got to do this separate. And, you you know, a lot of those things are coming down. And, and you know, you see some of the announcements, and they're sort of almost silly. You're, you see these regulations, like, you know, here now, a month into this crisis, the FDA and in its, in its benevolence is finally allowing state health boards to administer tests i mean come on what the, the state health board isn't allowed to wasn't allowed to deliver a, you know administer a test that's crazy your local doctor should be able to give a test in fact your, your 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 crazy cousin who's a chemist should be able to give a test and you and it should be your judgment whether you trust that test or not but to have you know even state health boards and even major you know these are major hospitals we're talking about huge huge medical systems with with thousands of doctors not allowed to give tests until you know, supposedly yesterday, but we've heard that a couple times. You know, so even the most basic and obvious kind of uh, restrictions, when you have just piles and piles and piles of laws, uh, it really becomes obvious now because you have lives at stake and things that, you know, all these zoning boards and just so many things that are bottlenecks in the way that wor- the world works. It's it's one thing if you're a you know millionaire landlord fighting with a zoning board for six months because you want to you know ha- add an extra toilet. It's another thing entirely if you need that extra toilet because somebody is in need and they desperately need an apartment. So I think people aren't going to have much tolerance for these kind of rules. And hopefully, you know, even the citizens, uh, you know, even the the people in government generally, hopefully, will kind of move towards those solutions and and look for ways to help people rather than get in the way. There is a couple percent of people who are bad apples and, and who really want authoritarianism and they want to use this as an opportunity for that. So you really got to watch out for those people.
1: I mean I think this is one of the most challenging things for me with this is, uh, is is figuring out where in the cycle of the conversation we are and being able to try to get people to have all the conversations at once right to kind of sift through their own fear and their their the feel, feeling of playing catch up with their own fear to also still have a conversation about uh what the right kind of limits of uh, of government intervention are let's hold aside the uh the uh, any any sort of monetary intervention for just a second. The there is obviously a a glowing global uh, growing global trend of using data to track citizens under the guise of kind of health uh, results, right? I I think Israel today just signed a law allowing them to do this officially. Meanwhile, you've got bills around uh, ending encryption that are kind of, you know, this is being jammed through in in Congress right now. And it's difficult to get, I mean, basically, this is a, a, a classic historical challenge, but the crisis times are when, uh, creeping authoritarianism happens. And this is not a, uh, you know, I, I am not a chicken little skies falling type. It's more just about like, can we have the consciousness and the compartmentalization almost to have, uh, to, uh, to d- defray almost our, um, Uh, our our general kind of philosophical opinions and look at the nuance of the situation and say, this is a thing we're okay with the government doing. This is is not, and this is a line. And we can have that conversation without it being, uh, you know, uh, about just the standard, you know, political rancor.
9: Absolutely. Absolutely. And really looking at what ideas are good ideas or bad ideas. And unfortunately, so few people, we knew this for years and years going back, very few people understand economics. They don't understand how money works, where it comes from. Uh, they don't understand the principles or properties of money. They don't really understand economics. I mean, people don't even understand the stock market. I mean, um, AOC clearly many, many, many times as indicated she just does not understand the stock market or how business works pretty much any better than any of you know her counterparts. Why would she? She doesn't have a background in it. She never worked in it. She, you certainly don't learn it automatically by becoming a member of Congress they don't give you some briefing I wish they I wish I could give those briefings you know even 10 hours would be better than zero hours um, and I'm not trying to pick on her particularly it is a time for us to all come together but there are just bad economic policies and people who just don't get it um, who are pushing pushing for these for these things because they just don't know better they, their heart might be in the right place um, I followed a lot of doctors and a lot of uh, you know, medical experts uh, going back about six weeks and I still continue to follow them. And a lot of them are liberal leaning and they don't know anything about economics. So so the same people who are saying, we've got to, you know, test and know what we're dealing with. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. We've got to take this virus seriously. they're They're now saying, we've got to do this. Stimulus, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, wait a minute! You know, uh, hold on. You're you're a doctor. You you probably don't know much about this. And uh, you know, same thing they said about me a month ago about the virus. Um, but but yeah, I mean, sound economic principles make sense, and it's unfortunate people just don't know those. So I I think you're gonna have a lot of mania and rushing into things, and you know, thinking about how uh, you know how things will work. Elizabeth Warren had a multi point. A memo about what she would require if companies get bailout. And, and for one thing, they shouldn't even be getting the bailout. But even if you did, it's a bad idea to give the bailout. But then she adds all these restrictions. You know, you must have this minimum wage. You must do this. And uh, managers are required to, by law to do this. Or they can go to jail and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that means that you're going to have a nanny state micromanaging. The, 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 so you have a bad decision given to generally bad businesses, because these are typically businesses who squandered their cash on buy, on buybacks. So you, you're, you're taking our money in a bad economic decision, giving it to bad businesses, and then saddling them with bad management ideas uh, on top of that. It's just a pure recipe for failure, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, uh, buybacks, by the way, I, I are absolutely going to be this crisis uh too big to fail type of type of uh you know rallying cry it, it's you're seeing it from everyone I, I think uh vortex for those of you who follow him on uh, on crypto twitter uh retweeted Aoc yesterday and he said you want to know how crazy a time it is i agree with Aoc on something and it was about buyback so i think that's a one of the interesting dimensions of this conversation that are that that that's starting to come up now as well but um bruce so one of the things that i uh that that you mentioned in terms of things that government can do is uh is where it can reduce restrictions uh, uh in certain ways and that i think is as a nice segue into the ventilator question so you've kind of it seems to me transitioned from uh signaling the warning signs to trying to more pursue uh, precisely and kind of surgically go after problems that you're anticipating and that others are anticipating coming forward um, so tell me about the, the the kind of ventilator project that that uh, that that has seen kind of an explosion of interest over the last 24 hours or so.
9: Yeah, that's exactly right. I did sort of shift, um, you know, a week ago or th- I don't know, probably just a few days. It seems like a week. Um, you know, they, there's no need to call alarm anymore, and there's a lot more qualified than me, people than me talking about the virus itself. I was talking about it really, really early. I used, I I put hashtag COVID nineteen on my on my tweets because it was so rare. <laughs> you know, people were following that hashtag. Uh, a few of them in our community, Balaji, Ryan Selkis, and, and, and a few others. Um, but now everybody knows about it. Now that, you know, COVID-19 is not a topic anymore. It's just subtopics of the of the topic. And so I'm going to try, I'm going to probably talk about it less. Although I would, for those still following the virus itself, I would exercise a lot of caution. There's now a lot more um, people with a vested interest in shaping a narrative. So I don't really trust data anymore. I was always skeptical of it, but you got to be even more skeptical now because there are people use you know using this as an opportunity to do bad things. Um, But I did try and figure out something I could do to help, which was looking at this ventilator issue, and and I simultaneously heard two things. One is we need a lot more ventilators, and the manufacturers aren't aren't even really up to capacity. And two, uh, there are ways to make. you know, ventilators from, uh, you, you know, you you can kind of patch together solutions. There's open source ventilators. They've been used in other countries. There's a lot of doctors, even in modern hospitals, where they've doubled up ventilators. And there's stories of people making 3D parts and things like that. So I said, well, hey, there's something. I don't know anything about ventilators. Um, but I do know about open source. And I know the power of open source. And I was already in this group, um, New England Complex Systems Institute, which is a very decentralized you know it feels like a bitcoin or an ethereum project it's just a whole bunch of people jumping in doing their thing and you get some real brilliant people and they start their own teams and and that kind of thing so 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 i asked the head of that if, if he, what he thought about the ventilators he says sure go for it you know typical open source kind of decentralized fashion just you know go go ahead be a leader and um Uh, So, so I wrote an article about it and very, very quickly, we got a lot of response and which is great. It's great for me also, because I am really looking forward to kind of turning it over to other people, not that I want to abdicate responsibility, but it's just, I don't even know that much about ventilators. I just try and create an environment that people can, um, you know, I think I did have confidence enough in myself that I could, that I know enough about open source from Bitcoin and other projects that I could foster an environment that helps with that. I've been out in Bitcoin saying, uh, you know, hey, be a leader. You know, you know, that famous line Gavin Andreessen said, what, probably six years ago, hey, don't wait for permission, just go do it. Um, so I figure I could, I could do that. And so far, that's worked. And so, you know, I, I, we've got some really good team leaders and other people. There's some very experienced medical doctors and, uh, you know, credentialed people who've dealt with regulatory approvals and issues like that. There's practitioners, uh, designers, medical device people. So we've we've developed a pretty good group of sub teams, and people are able to volunteer and help in the way that they can. We have everything from, uh, you know, just people with a 3D printer at home who are saying, "Hey, I don't I don't know anything about ventilators, but I can print a part if you want." Uh, to people saying, "You know, hey, I was uh, head FDA liaison for XYZ giant biomed company for years. I can I can tell you exactly what we need on the specs." We've got doc- just today there was doctors giving. Um, specs saying, you know, here's what you need, here's what it needs to basically be legal and safe. Um, And then we got lawyers working on, you know, going to FDA or other authorities in other countries. This is a global effort and saying, hey, we need emergency approval to do this. In practice, it really is driven by the medical professionals and the doctors, you know, pretty much doctors, one of of the ER docs, and this, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not, this isn't legal advice. uh, And it really depends on what country you are. But one of the ER docs said, "Hey, look, we're going to do what we do to save lives, um, and we're going to we're going to use this. We're going to use what we need to use." And and I think he's mainly talking about you know when they three D manufacture a part or they jury rig two hoses together to make it serve two people instead of one people or one person. Um, you know those kind of solutions are something that we're seeing right now, and hopefully a combination of all of this, uh, and again a, a main effort pressuring the regular uh manufacturers if we can help them get capacity up uh, and i've gone to a several manufacturers and i say hey you know you've got an opportunity now here that you have activists willing to help you is there any regulatory issue that you want torn down is there you know some you know 60-day waiting period requirement for a new factory certification something like that that we can get uh, torn down because if somebody is already a legal compliant manufacturer of ventilators um they're the best position they're by far the best position to say hey you know i've got this factory i can i can now expand the factory maybe i maybe there's a factory down the street that makes uh you know car hoses or car vacuums or something and we can retool the vacuum factory to make ventilators because you know whatever 50 percent of the equipment is the same um so those are the kind of things we're working on you know I don't. I don't know um, what results we'll have. I, it's. It's certainly. I'm optimistic based on the number and quality of people that have jumped into this and the, the publicity we've gotten so far. So, uh, maybe that's just some little little piece that we can do. And there's a lot of interesting things like this that people can do on their own.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You know, so basically, you saw this scenario where uh, one of the. Particular acute likely issues is uh, this particular medical uh, part that was uh, you know likely to, to have a shortage. And the response was uh, kind of dealing 360 with it, right? Like we've seen there, a news story blew up uh, over the last couple of days about 3D printing, but that doesn't take into account all of the regulatory issues, all the legal issues, all you know, whatever, all the patent issues. Like these things that uh, are, are are not grinding to a halt, even if it maybe feels like they should in some way. And so, you know, your your approach was this open source network. Are there for people who are listening and who are like, I, I want to be able to do more? Are there other issues like that 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 you know you haven't taken up because there's not enough time, or just places that they should be looking, or where they should be paying attention.
9: I think you know one thing. I was going to do. I should. I should probably go. I was going to do like q and A, a Q&A or an AMA or something. Just say, tell me your skills, and I'll tell you how you can help. That's something I'm pretty good at. You know, I think anybody can help. I mean, if you're an a, an opsec uh, or infosec person, if you're a if you're a um, you know a pen tester. Uh, you say, well, what can a pen tester do? Yeah, I tell you what you do: go to your local hospital because they're getting attacked right now, and figure out where they're vulnerable. And and don't make more work because they're all overwhelmed. But you can go in there, go ahead, do a free report for your local hospital or for you know any of these companies or groups that are getting hammered. You, you know, uh, you could, and I can I can make an example like that for anybody, whether you're graphics design or or whatever. There's there's Fold App, um, which is uh, they're the ones who did the SETI research, crunching data from SETI for years and years. You could do it on your home computer. Um, that enables you to take a GPU and crunch, I don't even know what kind, some kind of data that, that is apparently useful in the analysis of the virus that may help with uh, you, you, know, finding, um, you know finding data that people need. So you can go ahead and turn, it, turn on your computer and run, uh, you know, run it at home on a GPU. There's some things that are tied with a coin. I'm not really sure about that. I thought about that. That was something I was thinking about a, a couple of weeks ago, like, Hey, maybe you make a coin that does this, but um, for the coin to be any good at all, it you know, useful proof of work doesn't really jive with, uh, you know, a proof of work algorithm that needs a coin to be strong. And also, you know, there's all the other issues that every altcoin has, you know, why do you need it? Is it worth anything? I thought of it more like a, you know, like a, like a gold sticker, like, Hey, good job. You know, good job. I, you know, sort of bragging rights. Like, Hey, I got, I, I accumulated 150,000 COVID fold app coins, which showed that I really put a lot of computer power. I don't think that would have economic value. Anyway, I didn't pursue that. If somebody wants to go for it, that would be a really, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know if it'd be a good coin at all. I, if I was going to write a white paper on that, I would caution that it, it's, it's probably a horrible investment. But that's not the goal. The goal is just if you can incentivize people somehow to turn on their machine when they wouldn't have, you know, great. And if somebody's real smart out there, you have a lot of smart, you know, listeners, if they can tie it to Bitcoin or something like that, even better. I don't want to get too much into letting economics ride it because it's more like this is a problem we got to solve first. So I would encourage people just forget the coin part and just turn on your app you don't need to have any coin affiliate. You just just do this folding app, use your GPUs uh, for free and don't get anything in return. But what you are doing is potentially helping uh, solve it. So there's a lot of things like that. You know, there's every kind of equipment there's shortage of, you know, there was, I saw a video of a guy, he made his own mask manufacturer machine in his house. And apparently he could make like 100,000 masks in a weekend or something. He had this very fast spinning, you could probably find it very fast spinning kind of, Makeshift sewing machine thing, and it would cut. And uh, you know, there's all kinds of interesting things people can do. And what I've seen with uh, New England Complex Systems Institute, which is now over a thousand volunteers, not not just on the ventilator project, but across all the, all kinds of projects, is that um, you know we know the power of open source. A lot of real smart people jumping in, and they're all very motivated. And you have quality of people that just you know wouldn't wouldn't normally. You know, I mean a lot of I mean I'm busy I wouldn't there's no way I would be jumping in doing free volunteer work for yet another organization if you would have asked me a month ago I get invited all the time to be on nice prestigious boards and things like that I usually say no uh but with this I nobody even had to ask me I just jumped in because I said well I got a couple slow weeks of work right now I, I don't think a lot of people are beating down the door to uh you know do our conventional services and and, and frankly as a CEO I've got to uh, adjust for how we're we're evolving anyway. So yeah, I think there's a lot that a lot of people can do.
1: So Bruce, one, one last question for you, I guess, that's a, a little bit zoom out where in the pessimism optimism cycle are you now uh, today as we're recording this?
9: Hmm, Tough to say I, I, a little of both, I, you know, I want to be positive, but also realistic. You know, the realistic part is that we are in a real unprecedented economic mess. And the stoppage is going to cause things to grind to a halt, which may be hard to restart. Airlines, tourism, restaurants, you know, as you mentioned, these are 20% of our jobs. And that that's a big, big deal. And a lot of people, I think, are going to have a rude awakening to how the economy actually works. We need everybody. We need the, the people working as waiters and waitresses, because everything is helped by this overall economic movement. so I'm very uh, concerned about that and that is very um, you know th- that creates a lot of pessimism and I don't think the markets even reflected it yet and I think that the bad decisions by ours and other governments to print new money is going to be economically disastrous. Uh, maybe to the point where it's so bad it doesn't you know kind of everything suffers you know you, you know there's, a, there's some arguments say oh this could be good for Bitcoin yeah, sort of I hope so. Um, I actually bought some more Bitcoin today, but um, it, it, when it's real, real, real bad, it's not good for anybody. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to be a Bitcoin holder if, if half their city is out of work. I mean, look what happened to Detroit. You know, when things implode, it's bad. On the positive side, uh, you know, the, hopefully the, you know, people have so, sort of overreacted and you say, wow, there's this panic, it's bad, but but these things do pass. The Spanish flu passed. There's been quarantines of, of, you know, mass quarantines of people many times in history. I used the example of the Blitz in World War II, where, um, you know, two million people in in London lost their homes, or in the UK lost their homes. Uh, 40,000 died, and uh, I think 40 to 100,000 were injured. Uh, You know, you had these 9 11 scale bombings again and again and again. So people get through stuff. Um, and typically, when a war is over or a major crisis is over, the economy just booms. So we could we could be in a, for a great uh, decade. <laughs> we could be in for a great decade, a great decade where old broken systems and weak ideas and companies and economic plans and politicians are are uh, irrelevant, and a new breed of smarter, um, more logical people and policies take place. Uh, businesses go back to the good old basics of providing goods and services that people want and maybe new, new paradigms and new systems in Bitcoin and healthcare and decentralization and these kind of things, uh, you, you know, do well. That's my optimistic hope. Humans are strong. Humans are hard to kill. I, you know, somebody, I, I try and listen to everything, even conspiracy theorists who think the whole thing's fake. I think it's, it's wise to listen to everybody. Um, because you want to have good data, and there are people who will lie. And it does look, you know, to a conspiracy theorist, this looks a lot like a big giant psyop. I don't think so, because for the simple reason that even if it was, whoever created it wouldn't be able to control it. Nobody can control or predict something this um, complex. So if it was some, you know, sinister plot, it would be kind of the equivalent of like, Hey, I'm going to you know burn down my whole block because I want to burn one set of papers in one person's office. It wouldn't be a good plan. So in any event, I don't think I don't you know again, I don't think that somebody created this or this was an intentional. I think a lot of the fuel behind it is is people with bad motivations, but either way, it's out of their hands now. It's a big complex thing and it's in the world's hands. And the world, I think may make a lot of mistakes, but generally we're going to gravitate towards what's true. We're going to find the truth in, a, in an age of internet. Even if there's censorship or stuff, we're going to figure out what's true and we're going to figure out solutions to whatever it is. And then hum, human ingenuity and good old fashioned economic principles are going to come come to the, the forefront. So, you know, hopefully the the bad period that we're in isn't as bad as a lot of people are talking about. People are already kind of saying, you know, a year you know, hopefully we can keep this much shorter, get good diagnostics um, you know, and, and keep this to a short period and then come out of this much, much stronger than ever. That's my hope.
1: It's a hope I share. Well, thank you, Bruce, so much for taking a little time today. Uh, I know everyone who's listening appreciates it. And uh, we'll keep checking in with you as things progress.
9: Thank you. And thanks for all you do. We've talked a lot about
1: the Bitcoin price response to the coronavirus crisis. We've discussed it as recently as yesterday in the context of what this new era of helicopter money might mean for a non debasable asset like Bitcoin. We talked about it last week with Preston Pish around the idea of a coming bond crisis and a currency crisis that might ensue. What we haven't talked about as much is the idea of a shift from centralized to decentralized systems more broadly times of crisis tend to lead to consolidation of power at the center. Yet at the same time, as we're seeing in America, the response has to be inherently decentralized and a cooperation between central actors and decentralized actors to make this work. The massive campaigns to get people to take individual voluntary action to support the health outcomes not just of themselves but of those around them is great example of this. I don't know how this ends, but I do know that flexing and growing and developing this open source model and muscle feels important and relevant for the times that we'll face even once we've conquered the coronavirus or gotten it under control. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. We will be back not tomorrow. Tomorrow we're off, but we'll be back on Friday for another episode of The Breakdown. Until then,
0: peace. Welcome back to the Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. With your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by CoinDesk. All right, so I am here
1: with the infamous Peter McCormick. How are you doing, man?
7: I'm doing very well. How are you, Nathaniel? Very strange times, right now.
1: Uh, it is. It is strange times. Like we. Man, I feel like our younger selves talked about strange times last year, probably, and you know, whatever. Like, it's 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 officially crazy times, and it seems like it's been especially crazy for you lately.
7: Well, yeah, but... Well, I think it's strange for everyone now, and I think the situation that we all feared... I don't know, actually. I kind of get the feeling some people... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and pick my words carefully, but some people are watching this situation and seeing things they expected to play in the play out in terms of governments and and the centralized control play out exactly as they've always said it would. and I'm very fearful right now of getting into the whole um, uh, extended reach of the state that this is gonna be used by the government to, to exert bigger control over us. They're gonna put the army on the streets and reduce our, civil liberty, reduce our civil liberties and take control of our money, blah, blah, blah. All those things that people in our field have been talking about for quite a long time, that's been happening anyway, that seems to be accelerating right now. My view is that I understand why some of this is accelerating now in terms of the armies on the streets. And I'd like to unwrap that with you actually and go into that. And I think it's a natural reaction by the government. And I just think we need to be very careful to hold them to an account that when we come out at the end of this, this doesn't change the way we are treated as humans. And it doesn't change our relationship between us and the government.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is you and I were starting to chat about this the other day, but mm. this is uh, it is not good for Twitter engagement. But this is a time that really, really calls for nuance. In the way that we because there's so many things that are not mutually exclusive, you can believe that it is a time for extraordinary measures, while also wanting very ardently to ensure that the those Extraordinary measures in those extraordinary times aren't just kind of casually uh, filtered to normal, right? Yep. And uh, and the, the the problem is that a lot of the dialogue around those things is going to be totally binary, either a fear, panic based reaction of uh, you know we'll give away all our liberty for the sake of security, or on the other hand a uh, a dismissive almost uh you know like the 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 government shouldn't be helping at all because it's going to just lead to this it's also the slippery slope right the slippery Mm -hmm. slope argument and there is a big big middle space that is about specifics and i think that that's what i keep coming back to it's like let's not uh, uh for me what i'm watching personally is specific instances of you know, even even to the granularity of like, what is the nature of the conversation that the U.S. government is having right now with Facebook, Google? What's the type of data? What are they looking in aggregate data? Is their person like you know these things? These nuances are are important, even if you're coming from a a, a position of um a, a very strong kind of personal privacy and personal liberty. And and unfortunately, I think that it's it's hard to have nuanced calm discussions in in a time where honestly the volume is uh, you know this this time goes to 11 but it's actually like 13 you know or 14 Mm. right
7: now i think nuance is is important here like you said um i saw something on twitter the other day where somebody or even today somebody said and i think it might have been in san francisco certainly california that somebody was fined four hundred dollars for walking their dog or being with a friend or something And again, I don't know if that's true. It sounds believable. And if it hasn't happened, sounds like the type of thing that is going to happen. But I think it's a bit unnecessary. I think it's one of those situations where the person, the police officers could have said, look, we need people off the streets and this is why. But where I get really stuck at the moment is um, I've been led down the road, a new road in my life with libertarians and anarcho-capitalists who talk about personal freedom and nobody should tell anyone what to do etc etc and I fully understand that and there's a lot I agree with I talked to Giacomo Mozuko about this the other day I agree with a lot of it but also at the same time we are we don't have anywhere an anarcho-capitalist society we don't have anywhere have a libertarian government so we are in, a, in in a world where we have the state and the state is going to respond to a situation like this and watching the footage in Italy, which is quite frankly terrifying. I've watched the footage in the hospital today. Uh, we've also just had a news announcement from in London. Where Listen to this. This is um, a critical incident at London Hospital after surge in coronavirus cases. Basically, they've hit capacity. Their ICU has <laughs> hit capacity. So if the ICU is at capacity... They're going to have to be at that point where they choose who to treat. If you don't have enough ventilators, you're going to have to give somebody another option. Perhaps that's some kind of hand ventilator, or perhaps you don't have a machine, or perhaps you have to turn around to a 92-year-old and give their machine to a 46-year-old because they've got more chance of survival and... And that's the decisions they're going to have to be making. And I've, I've got a friend who works at an ICU in Australia. And he said, we're very early now, but we are preparing for wartime triage where we are going to have to be choosing about who to give machines to and who we help survive and who we may have to let go. And he said it's, he's terrified. So we, we are at this situation where we've seen something expand rapidly globally. In the space of a few months, it's gone from patient zero in China to thousands of people like over a thousand people dying now per 24 hours. I think we've hit that point. Infection rates are obscene. So if the government is going to respond, whilst we don't want infringements on our civil liberties and we want everyone to have personal personal freedom, personal choice, I can still understand why the, the government is thinking, well, we perhaps need to put the army on the streets and say to people, stay home. And this is why, because you're going to get sick and you might make other people sick. And and I guess a tough nuance in that is well somebody who's a libertarian might say well I, I observe the non-aggression principle. I'm not going to go near anybody else and I'm not going to spread this because I don't want to make anyone sick and I'm just going to keep myself to myself. But what happens if they get on a bus or go somewhere and they they leave you know they are infected and they infect and they leave you know the virus on a surface for 3 days and infect somebody else. So I very much want to support civil liberties and freedom and not have an extension of the state. But right now, I really understand why some of the governments are doing what they're doing. Does that make sense? Listen.
1: Absolutely. I I think too again let's keep since I've already screwed myself by saying that the theme of the conversation is going to be nuanced let's keep going with this theme right like there is there's a very strong argument if you are kind of a small government oriented person that one of the functions of the state should be to uh, to be able to uh exert power in this sort of situation right to be able to have effective state power deployed in fact Tyler Cowan who is pr- one of the, probably the most uh widely read uh you know popular libertarians right marginal revolution he's not on the fringes of of intellectual society he's right in the mainstream right he's interviewed everyone he wrote about this he has a, a term for it that i'll pull up at some point when you're talking because it's, it's worth looking but this is part of his argument is that it's not a uh uh a, a, a it's not mutually exclusive to be a small L libertarian, but also think that this sort of the, the state being able to deploy the right type of power in these situations is correct. Now, the interesting thing is, is what does it look like to be correct? One thing that's been really fascinating for me to watch uh, over the last week. So I'm in New York, right? I'm in, uh, mm-hmm. in the Hudson Valley. So I'm outside of New York City. There's been a huge kind of disagreement between Cuomo and de Blasio. De Blasio keeps talking about shelter in place. He wants shelter in place. And Cuomo has been aggressive about that. In every press conference, he said, words matter. And he's he's you know so basically New York for those who haven't been paying attention has decreased uh, on Wednesday they said that only 50% of the workforce of non-essential uh, businesses could go into work right so uh, you know this is and this is after restaurants had gone takeout only and certain types of businesses had been closed down where there's a lot of you know interaction and things like that but even aside all that any other business Wednesday it was 50% uh, Thursday it was 75% today it went to 100%. And he said, this is the most severe thing. And, and he was like, you know, basically, the, the point that he was making is that shelter in place is a specific term that now refers to an active shooter. It came from uh, when, uh, from the nuclear era, when it meant literally go to the center of your house and stay there until you hear clear. What he's his point was that when we say shelter in place, it scares people. Like, we're not in the business of imprisoning people in their homes. What we're saying is that what we can do, and there's plenty of people who argue that this is still too extreme in a, from a business perspective, but he's like, what we can do is say businesses can't operate right now. Uh, and what we can do is we say, we can say, uh, please don't leave your home for anything other than essential. But like a, a walk is uh, essential for some people's mental health. Walking your dog, you're not going to be fine for that. Right. Uh, and so it's it's an interesting little tightrope where he's trying to get as much voluntary contribution from people So that there doesn't have to be draconian measures you know but at the same time he kind of went off on young people who aren't taking this seriously like so there's there's this there's this tightrope act but there there is a uh, a possibility of getting that tightrope act right i think one thing that i haven't seen from the conversation that's been frustrating me is uh, okay so so let's play this out we're talking about what are the real economic impacts of this and we're talking about how does the state retreat from that authority right later and it seems very clear to me that the reason that this thing is so deadly is the overwhelming of the healthcare system right it is mm-hmm. it is not a, it. it's not just a. you know like it is about the way that the healthcare system gets overwhelmed i just heard of a friend right before this call who lost her 99 year old mother or grandmother because not because of coronavirus but because the hospital wouldn't let her in they didn't have any space for her mm-hmm. so like that is it's a hospital capacity question We need a friggin' like a very fast Marshall plan right now for getting all of the medical supplies, for getting the field hospitals, for deploying that full might so that because we will have to resume life, but we need this new infrastructure. And guess what? Like we could be potentially putting people to work, building that infrastructure. Like that's that is the key thing. And that's the point at which how do we get to transition back to a different life? We have the infrastructure to be able to deal with this as what it is, which is a very virulent but addressable virus.
7: Mm. It's a very, very complicated situation. Um, I mean, and do you know what? The other thing, are we, are we the same age? I can't remember if I'm a bit older. I'm 41.
1: I'm 35. You're 35. So, so you're
7: a bit younger, but like similar ish. Um, it's such a strange situation. It's, al- it's almost overwhelming in that. About two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I called my father because he's seventy-two and he's a smoker and has bronchitis. So he is prime candidate for contracting. If he contracts coronavirus, that he would almost certainly need a ventilator and possibly die. You know, he's a prime candidate candidate because it's a respiratory virus. So I phoned him two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. Actually, I phoned my brother first. I said, "I think we need to put Dad into lockdown." And my brother wasn't sure. then about two days later, he agreed, and I said, "Dad, now's the time." And he said, "I can't. I've got all my golf stuff on." I was like, "Hold on, Dad. You need to really understand this." And I took him through it. And then I also found my ex-wife's parents and, and did the same. And I think I think I realised how serious this was. Probably a little bit ahead of my friends because of the world we live and work in. Yeah, yeah. We're attached to the news a bit more. We follow it a bit more. But it's this kind of weird kind of spectrum of. Wanting to take it seriously as possible without looking ridiculous to other people who think you're panicking, and I think everybody's eventually going to get to on the spectrum to the to the extreme end where they realise how serious this is. It's just going to take them a lot of time, but as as we get there, we've got to make some serious decisions. And I don't know if I I, I don't want to be the person who stands there and says, "Well, I think the state should." should take control of us and put the army on the streets and tell us what to do because we live in this bitcoin world whereas if you ever show any form of statism it's used as an insult against you oh you bloody statist you're a statist. you're a bootlicker you're a government loving statist. any kind of insult so you're you're almost questioning yourself saying well i am i'm thinking fuck i i think there's a lot the state can do right now i think there's certain things the state can do better than individuals can do on their own right because i believe they just put some enforcement in place and it's gross and it's scary and it's terrifying and you made a really made a really good use of um, language when you said um when they how how does the state retract from this position which is very Mm -hmm. i think you've articulated that perfectly but right now if we were to just give advice to people and tell them what to do we saw what happened in nashville or on the beaches in florida people were ignoring it and i just feel like i i almost don't want to have a, the the state argument now the libertarian argument now i want to say what is the best thing we can do and i'm not going to get over upset by certain actions of the state because just just because so many fucking people are going to die and i think and then i try and measure it and i, I try and question it to myself and i think all right, well, if freedom is the most important thing to me, civil liberties, then we should give everyone the advice, but let everyone have free will to choose what they will do. But does that ultimately lead to many more people dying? Giacomo Zucco will come and give a very good, nuanced argument about why I'm wrong. I just, my gut feel thinks that this is a situation where we have no choice but the state to put into some some draconian measures. But I I say it with this kind of Bitcoin of guilt, thinking I'm not meant to stand for this. I'm meant to be <laughs> against this. I'm meant to say, no, this isn't right. And and, and almost certainly a lot of the stuff they're going to do is wrong. I think the UK government's initial decision seemed brave. And within two days, I was like, no, you got this wrong. You fuck that up. I think almost yeah. certainly Trump has got a, an awful lot wrong. And I really don't like his rebranding of the virus as the Chinese virus. I think he's running every press press conference like a PR exercise for the 2020 election. I don't like that. And that doesn't mean I support China or I'm a CCC bootlicker. I just don't like that. So I think the governments are going to make a lot of fucking mistakes because they're dealing with something unprecedented and it's really, really hard. But at the same time, I I don't know. I don't feel like I'm in this place that I can give some... I don't know. I don't think now is the time to be arguing over civil civil liberties in terms of some of the decisions the state's making now i think now's the time to say how do we ensure when this is over that they do retract from these positions that we don't lose a bunch of freedoms well the limited freedoms we already have we don't lose them and i think that's more a more practical place to approach it from
1: yeah i mean listen i think uh my my feeling is almost always and certainly in this case is that Everyone gets to have a different voice and a different importance. One of the things that I've always loved about uh, Bitcoiners much more extreme than I am, whether it's about, uh, about the crypto industry or whether it's about uh, libertarian politics or anything like that, is that they provide a, 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 an, unflapping, uh, an unflappably um, clear pull. Of the discourse, right? That that is that is an anchor point that you can go to. That the, and and I think that uh, a, a free, open society only works if you can have perspectives at both extremes screaming at each other. Now, where I usually find myself is wanting. I, I'm I tend by nature to be radically more pragmatic than I would like to be. Even like I have this very strong and weird combination of. Uh, of incredibly uh, kind of frustrated and passionate, but then like want to hone in on the thing that can be addressed. So right now, for example, I'm looking at this bill that was happening before coronavirus that is trying to get end to end encryption uh, out of the way. Right. And this has been uh, attorney general Barr has (laughs) been fighting this fight since, since a while ago. Right. It's been him versus Apple and Apple has been fighting, but they've, you know, they've kowtowed in certain ways at certain points. Uh, But, That is a specific, discrete thing, right, that doesn't really necessarily have to do. I think smart people can argue about how much tracking and surveillance is really necessary for this, you know, and although in some ways I'm much more worried about uh about the the tracking and surveilling of every citizen via their mobile app uh, than I am about uh local police forces enforcing a curfew even if I think like you know curfews seem like a weird you know choice to me right like they, in some ways they, those are different things so I'm going to be flying the flag of and screaming about that that other thing that specific thing um but you know I also think that right now there is a little bit of a, Pick your battles situation in the sense of there are some things that have left the station like no one like we have gone from uh, uh, a there is no longer any political space for not direct intervention in people's bank accounts. In, in this, And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that the biggest reason is that there's also no political will in Congress or the Senate to not bail out companies. But they also, having lived through 2008, know that they can't not bail out regular people and bail out companies as well. Uh, or, or they can't bail out companies and not bail out regular people as well. There's no way that anyone will get voted. But perhaps they can. You know, they're, they're very scared to let industries to let companies die right mm-hmm. like the, this is a this is a system that feels fragile to everyone that they're going to try to preserve with whatever they can so like us screaming about UBI and things like this or whatever you know or you know quantitative easing and the money printer like these are the the new narratives the new memes but the reality is is that this is a situation where we already had an answer to that which is Bitcoin and participation in the Bitcoin mm-hmm. ecosystem and for the first time this crisis is the first one that's happened where there is a voluntary opt-out mechanism at least on some level now we all live in society so I think it's overstated to say that we're opting out entirely, but there is this other thing, right? So I feel like a lot of this has to do with uh, with one picking your battles, two figuring out where there's actually levers of change to pull, and uh, and the reality is is that when when people are dying, when hospitals are being overwhelmed, and when people are losing their jobs, you're not going to win most arguments about not intervening. So I, I I go far, I go right to the other side of that conversation and say there will be a time at which. Uh, this has gotten more under control, right? Where the, mm-hmm. the healthcare system has gotten more uh, under control. What do we? Wh- what can we not give up on the way?
7: Yeah, do, do you know Can I talk about something as well that I still haven't seen the answer for? Because, mm-hmm. so we're at this point now where we're having to put, if every, every almost country is going through the same steps, just at a different time. And I'm seeing the US is doing it if you think think each state is more like a country they're, they're going through a similar process whereby it's okay we've got some infections okay the infections are going up we've had a death oh now we've had double figures deaths now now the uptick's starting to happen so the uk is in the, the real uptick right now italy is way ahead of everybody france and spain germany aren't looking great you know us is starting to pick up and, and during that process they go through a you have concerns from the politicians that Initially, they start talking about perhaps we won't have enough ventilators or enough machines. And then they start talking about, OK, we're probably going to have to consider social distancing. And people start to make some of their own choices, a little bit of panic buying, you know, maybe telling their parents to lock themselves down. And then the government comes in and says, OK, we need to enforce some social Distance in, we're gonna close down the schools. Okay, now you can't go to work. Everyone should work from home and now it's full lockdown. Every every country appears to be following a very similar trajectory with all of this. Mm-hmm. Which is and the reason they're following that trajectory is because of the the infection rates are so rapid that as you said earlier, the health systems are coming under so much pressure. What I don't understand is and what any, nobody has explained is how do we come out of this because even if in say say the UK can reduce the, flatten the curve we've heard this, term, flatten the curve say they can do it in 12 weeks or even 16 we've got 3 to 4 months of lockdown suppose they flatten the curve then what? <laughs> what do you do there? If, we, if we're talking about not having a vaccine for say 18 months even a year, let's say even a year what happens between month three and four and month 12? Are, are a handful of people allowed to go to work? Are, is specific towns allowed to go to work? Do we have to have in some place, some way of tracking who has an infection and who they're coming to touch with? And if a new infection happens, then it, then all, anyone who's coming to touch with that person has to be locked down again. Um, if you do that, we're gonna have schizophrenic businesses that pop up and shut down very quickly. So that's not gonna be operational. We're never going to get children back to school. So it feels like, realistically, we're in this until there's a vaccine. I can't see how we come out of it. And and I'll be honest, this is the first time in my life I've actually been really scared. Not personally, just more scared generally for people. And what's going to happen over the next 12 months? Because you've got entire industries of, I mean, the airline industry is, is done right now pretty much the, the crew nobody's going to go on a cruise right now hotels are screwed but and then all the knock-on businesses from there what about the restaurants in the hotels what about the companies that supply the parts to the airlines what about the engineers who work for the airlines what about the what about the airports themselves what about the taxi drivers that take people from the airport home the knock-on effect from this i i think is frightening i don't and i don't know the answer but i just don't see are we are we in this are we all locked down now for a year
1: well, I do think so a couple thoughts. First is that there uh there is going to be some precedent, right? We can watch how Asia is trying to manage this and see what works. And the thing that's clear is that they've redesigned, I mean, they were already way ahead of us on this, but the the you don't go into a building right now in Singapore without having your temperature checked, right? It is mm-hmm. just a totally different experience of life where everything is about controlling potential uh outbreaks right and being able to get that cluster there's still i think there's still really good questions about school and how that's working and everything else but i think that it's going to be uh an extreme amount of vigilant data gathering and information um so that's kind of like part part one i mean but but at least if nothing else the the uh, there will be some we have a couple months to of, of, we're behind by enough time to see what's working, right? They, I mean, for better or worse, they get to be the guinea pigs, uh, you know, in this. Um, I think the, the second part is, you know, we've largely, because it's really, I mean, uh, let's be clear about what our timeline is. It has really only been a few weeks since uh, the US started to take this seriously. February 24th was literally the first day that markets reacted to this at all in the US. I know because it was the day that Caitlin Long announced Avanti and I interviewed her and we were talking about how the markets had just started to react for the first time. February 12th, meanwhile, was all time highs, right? So 12 days between between that and, and, and less trading days, obviously. Uh, and now we're only, we are only, <laughs> we're at the end right now of the first full week where the US president acknowledged the severity of this thing and wasn't just calling it. Uh, another flu, right? If you go back, not to, to to two Mondays ago, right? So four days ago, and then seven days before that, he put out a tweet about how the flu kills so many more people, right? It wasn't until Wednesday of that week that Tom Hanks got it, the NBA shut down, and Trump got on TV and said, we actually have to do something about mm-hmm. this. Uh, so we're we're really still like, in the US, we're like seven working days, you know, nine days total into the the leadership of the country not being Totally insane about this thing. Uh, And we've done, uh, it's almost like I'm watching this weird thing. Like, this is a, to me, this is a a health issue that creates a financial markets issue, that creates an economic issue, that potentially creates a geopolitical issue. And it's almost like we're watching these things, like, so, you know, the people are finally taking the health issue seriously. However, we're dealing right now with the uh, with the still testing dimension of it, right? Not the, not the, the overwhelmed the healthcare system yet, which is what's right around the corner, which is why people are so scared and they should be from an infrastructure perspective. Uh, with the financial markets, obviously we've seen a huge sell-off, but the, the Fed is using every tool that it has. The federal government is obviously using every tool that it has to try to keep this in check. What we haven't experienced yet is the economic knock-on, really, right? Because again, mm-hmm. people haven't been out of work for long. Uh, you know, if again, if you go back to Cuomo, he went from fifty percent of the workforce to seventy-five percent of the workforce to one hundred percent over three days. He knew the math. He knew exactly how much this was going to go. He he used that time, I believe, to get people more and more used to the idea, right? Rather than going zero to one hundred and scaring the shit out of people, that was a specific psychological tactic. You know, which which honestly, I applaud him for. I think in some ways, this is the correct call, although. Maybe a week earlier or whatever, right? So you've got you, you've got the the just the beginnings of the economic hardship that this is going to represent, and we have never had anything this fast, you know. And like the the only hope is that it's. Uh, you know, someone called it World War Three for 90 days, and that's that would be the best case scenario where by July 15th, when U.S. taxes are due, and you know that we actually have gotten the healthcare system under control, people can start to go back to work, and the big money printing machine, you know, ha- has helps people get through that 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 part or whatever it is. Right? People uh, have have done it together. I'm more worried because I see, uh, like you. I think that it's the it's it's everything that it's so much more than just the twenty percent of the twenty percent of people are in the service industry, right? So you've already got that, but there's a million more things that aren't accounted for. That and and you, I think that you come across this like you just think for a little bit, right? Like you know we've joked about this before, but uh, our, our family's favorite hobby is Magic the Gathering. There are thousands and thousands of local game stores all around the country who are for tons of different games, but they're anchored around that. Who are just Cooked. There's no. They're are already hanging on by a thread because they're from a different time, right? Mm-hmm. Where we went to stores and you know played games together rather than doing it online, which is so much more convenient. Like the number of that that companies in that space, small businesses that are going to shut down is going to be enormous. And like I don't know, card stores, like your local bath and body shop. That's just someone who had a dream, like florists. You name it. You know what I mean? Like the. I think we haven't even begun to grapple with what that might mean. Now the the thing that I think that we're extra not grappling with though is the uh what might happen geopolitically globally right like we are already at the the tail end of the US designed post World War II order where uh we are retreating we are aggressively retreating from the world you know i mean this has been uh, uh trump uh, you know i mean it, he's continuing things he's accelerated it certainly but this has been uh going on for a while is a retreat from the world and one of the few happens, things i actually
7: like I was going to say that's one of the few things I actually like about what Trump's been doing he seems to want to get away from wars and uh, intervention which is one of the few things I actually admire about him
1: well, it's, I, I agree. I am I am no fan of war. But I do think, too, that there is a there are untold consequences. Right. In terms of like when you start to unwind uh, an order where uh, everything is interconnected from a, a global shipping, what you do is you create a scenario where all of a sudden there are. Uh, really rich countries and really poor countries, not based on where they sit in the global order, but based on their actual resources. Mm -hmm. And it does not look, I mean, this is, I'm literally just a parrot for Peter Zahan right now, who just wrote Disunited Nations. Um, But this is my background, too. This is where, like, when I I first, you know, uh, I was in global change systems and things like that. I thought I was going to spend my life working in Israel-Palestine or Uganda and Rwanda. And, uh, and I think that we, we haven't grappled that except maybe a little in the, like, even the Chinese virus thing, which I, I feel very similar to you about. The, the, the cynical brilliance of this guy when it comes to manipulating the news cycle is unfathomable. And uh, this is, I thought for sure. The uh, incalculably bad response that he has had to coronavirus was going to be his undoing. But I think the ability to shift it to a us versus them at a time when everyone's angry, it plays right into the the rights narrative that liberals are just, you know, uh, social justice warriors who are concerned about racism. Like, this is a thing that is basically definitionally racist. But that's not the point. He's not doing it as a dog whistle racism thing. That's just a fun byproduct, right? The reason that he's doing this is, a, uh, is two things. One is that the CCP is in a fight for their life because the Chinese citizens have never been as closer to, uh, to rebelling as they are now after this situation. Agreed. And so they are desperately trying to put that narrative uh, of the U.S. actually starting it, right? So uh, there's one, there's a, uh, a geopolitical brinksmanship being played there, signals to the rest of the world. That's one thing that's going on. Now I think that there's a lot of uh, very smart, savvy geopolitical thinkers who think that uh, fought, like responding to that in kind is a really stupid strategy. So I'm not commenting on the, the the quality of the strategy. I'm just saying that's part of it. The second part of it is this fucker has to. Excuse me, listeners, but he has to uh, he has to uh, he has to shift the narrative from literally, like I said, two Mondays ago, he was saying it was as bad as the flu to I've always taken this seriously. And in fact, if you go back, the one thing he did do is close the borders to China real fast because that was fine with him. Right. That was played into what he did. He wants everyone to say like. It was a Chinese virus. I closed the borders to China. We did everything, you know, like that. And it plays perfectly to his political base. It's an easier narrative. You know, it's an easier narrative than me in October going back and showing, well, like this was the death toll at this time and this is what they said. And this was the death toll. Like no one's going to care. They're just going to like when the the other option is Chinese virus. It was their fault,
7: right? So I find Ben Shapiro an interesting character. I, I disagree with a lot of what he says. I think he, his delivery sometimes is a little bit sinister, and I think he likes to be angry about things. But I also admire some of the things he does and the way, the way things he explains. And one of the things I like he does with Trump is he will say about the things he thinks he's done well, and he'll criticize him. Mm-hmm. And one of the real problems I have with politics right now is the... Um, yeah, I said it on Twitter the other day. Somebody was like, uh, uh, Trump derangement syndrome. But there is a t- Trump defensive syndrome whereby anything mm-hmm. he does, however, agrarious, can be defended. And I think the most interesting people who are able to politically observe and criticize and compliment and give credit where due to both sides rather than just say, always, you know, like, oh, that's just the liberal left wing way, or just say, oh, oh, oh. oh or, or just that uni, unilateral hate for, for Trump, I, I can't, neither work for me. And the reason they don't work, because it's just completely intellectually dishonest. There is no world which suits... There is no world where everything is correct right or everything's correct left, because it doesn't account for different personality types and different economic positions. And I think the most intellectually honest thing you can ever do is, is be fair and be critical. And I was... I, i've defended trump sometimes and which by the way in the uk is a really hard thing to do if you try <laughs> it's really hard you're not talking about 50 percent of the nation you're talking about five percent of the nation who will agree with you everyone thinks he's a fucking yeah, yeah. Mor- honestly everyone thinks he's a moron i tried it with my brother and my dad over over christmas and my brother refused to talk to me and um and i said to him well the thing about trump is i don't love him but i, I think he would i'd rather him as the leader of the u.s than hillary if i had to choose just because I think Hillary is is crooked and, and and evil, whereas I think Trump is just at times stupid. But I, so I I said the other day when he called it the China virus, I said the rebranding. I I think I think it's a disgrace, and the reason I think it's a di- disgrace is for a couple of reasons. I think firstly, it's I think all his press conferences are run as PR exercises. Mm-hmm. For him to be calling well, that's a, that's for sure. That- yeah you know partway through one of them somebody said something about joe biden he said yeah sleepy joe this i just think it's so immature pathetic a time when he's addressing the nation and the biggest crisis the us may ever face the the world may ever have faced um at, at, a, at a time where he needs to be addressing the nation he's putting his little childish digs in about joe biden and i th- i think that was pathetic i think calling it the china virus was totally a deflection exercise and the really important thing for me and i would have been equally critical if that's this had been a uk leader is that during the the biggest crisis a country has ever faced or one of the you know top crises a country has ever faced that you are still entirely focused on your personal reputation that right now all you are think clearly thinking about is will i win the 2020 election firstly if it goes ahead let's just assume it's going to go ahead and by the way three months ago it was a slam dunk i i think even a month ago it was a slam dunk he was winning the Mm -hmm. next election Mm
8: -hmm. i
7: don't think even biden or bernie sanders would have the ability to to remove him i think this i think this coronavirus and what happens puts under threat I think it makes it more debatable about whether he'll win the next election because he's going to be judged entirely on this and it might be out of his hands you know he might have done the best things possible he might have put in the best policies possible straight away either way a lot of people are going to die and there's going to be an economic crisis and because of that people might hold him accountable even though he couldn't have done anything anyone else had done but for him at this time to be using the most important time in the country as a, as a continual and very obvious PR exercise, I think that's disgraceful because I, I understand a small amount of it's going to happen. But for each time for him to come out and say, we've done a perfect job. We've got, we've got these people. They're amazing. They're tremendous. They're doing a perfect job. I, I think it's great to talk people up. But, but every time he refers back to himself, he said, well, I, I did the best job possible here. He's, he's got universal belief that everything he does is perfect and right, without any self-awareness uh, and i just think it's a dangerous time to be starting a, a war of words with the chinese and just in response because if people listen to this they might give some of the response i got on twitter firstly they said no you just want to you're just a typical uh, liberal left focus on, on racism okay firstly i'm not lefty secondly i never even want to mention racism Th- this to me was never about racism this, to me, was about leadership, and I just thought it demonstrated weak leadership. Also, people were saying, well, such and such at the CCP had blamed the U.S. I said, fine. Then turn around and say, there's been accusations in the press from from X who said this is a, a U.S.-engineered virus. This is obviously ridiculous, and we won't entertain such knowledge, and we will be speaking to their ambassador. I think there's more mature and better ways to deal with it than just now start going, the China virus like 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 he runs his every single policy on every decision is like how can he meme it and i don't know dude i just personally it's actually where has he grown in my estimation as somebody where i just i thought he was an idiot when he first came in and after four years i thought Do you know what he's not as bad as i thought he thought he's done he's done some good things there and i can understand why people like him right now i, 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 I he's lost he's lost some credibility with me which i know some people will go we well, don't fucking matter who cares you you're a brit and you're a nobody but at the same time i can imagine others will be feeling this as well
1: no i think i mean listen i think that the hard thing in american politics right now which spills into politics everywhere is that it is uh it is internecine warfare there are there are religious cults on both sides and if you are someone who feels like can can likes people from both sides has different opinions from both sides it's not even center unfortunately center is not a really good term uh it's more like a a, a bouncer right like you're mm-hmm. like a ping pong ball because there's got like people are big and diverse and their experiences make them feel different things you know and it is uh you know i i think that's that's the challenge for people is that when when everything becomes politicized but how how can it not be you know um let me ask you a question actually because yeah. i want to i want to touch on this a little bit um you just spent uh you just had a big trip where you went to places that were having a hard time of it even before uh before the coronavirus mm-hmm. um how how have the last couple weeks well one like you know what 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 was that trip about and what what were your some of your takeaways but how has the last couple of weeks of seeing the world respond to coronavirus recontextualized it for you like i, I that's the type yeah. of thing where i have trips that i took that i thought meant one thing but in in retrospect the thing that i learned was very different you know
7: yeah yeah good, good question so <clears throat> the the transition from having a bitcoin podcast having two podcasts was very much about wanting to expand outside of Just being able to talk to people about bitcoin i did it a few times on the bitcoin podcast but there were subjects i wanted to touch on and and so i launched the other one defiance and really that was just to for me to learn you know as an education process for me but also yeah just to expand outside of the bitcoin and what i found very quickly in doing defiance and traveling because i used to travel to cities where i could cover bitcoin and defiance and what I realized traveling was that actually the defiance stuff is sometimes more visual. It's it's things you need to see. You know, you need to visually see what is. You know, Hong Kong. I can do an interview with somebody about Hong Kong, but really, what's going to be much more effective, and much more powerful, is a video of people protesting and maybe short, snappier interviews with people there. So I realized that actually defiance needs to be a at least a film brand alongside it potentially only a film brand P- perhaps it not a podcast in the future that i don't know so i just and i also just wanted to become a filmmaker myself just ambition wise Yeah, you know, i really enjoy doing the podcast i've really enjoyed doing the specials like the one on mount gox and in doing mount gox i realized so i'm going off on a tangent but bear with me it all comes back together doing the mount gox no, no, i no, realized.
1: Right. well you know what you know what we're doing you know what we're doing right now we're basically doing the thing that like you know, all, all of our elected leaders are now advising us to, which is like the way that you deal with social distancing is you just like call up your friends, do a video chat and talk about yeah. things that you wouldn't have normally talked about. So for anyone, yeah. anyone who's listening, like treat it as such. I, when I do my intro for the show, I'll make sure to make that point that it's not like we're going to go over the recent price action and, and what it all means. Yeah. It's definitely <laughs> not that. But so so go off on any tangent is my point.
7: But yeah, so when, when I did the Mt. Gox series, straight away afterwards i wanted to do it again because it was just a sequential set of interviews it was six interviews actually what i really wanted to do was research mm-hmm. the story create a narrative and an arc do the interviews knit them together and and run it mm-hmm. like a documentary and i've been working on one about bitcoin as well which you know i'm deep into and the natural progression is i can produce audio documentaries that's fine but i'd like to produce video documentaries just a personal personal ambition so i bought all the equipment all the camera equipment and i decided i was going to head back to south america because i i really wanted to go to venezuela because i could do two things i could cover bitcoin because it's always seen as a bitcoin use case and i could cover the economic crisis but as i was going there i was like right i'll go to colombia i'll go to bolivia and i'll go to chile i'll do them all together So I went out there with this intention of just starting filming and making some film work. And then I had been talking to this producer slash camera operator for a while. And he said, look, I'll come out with you. So I was like, fine, I'll pay for you. And it was really just meant to be a test. Go out to these four countries, film a bunch of stuff, see what we've got at the end of it. We struck gold a few times. We got very lucky with what we stumbled across and the content we were able to make. But what what? resonated for me it was like two things came together at the same point somebody had said to me you're going to really have to figure out what it is you're making pete and why you're making it what's your angle you know what is it about you that people should watch your videos and what you care about and that was a like really stuck with me i was like yeah you're right i can't just film shit and put it out there you know what is it i do care about and i know like in my heart i know it's human stories i whenever this shit's going off i just care about the humor stories at the back of it and to give a good example of that is just having been out to turkey and greece with the border um i think in in that situation everyone's got a valid argument that the the, the uh, turkish government got a valid argument that they've got 3.7 million migrants in the country that's a lot of pressure how many can they take and i think the greek government are right when they turn around and say look we've already taken a million in we can't take any more." and i think the The people who live in Germany or Sweden who've experienced mass social unrest from the integration of migrants have got a valid argument saying this hasn't worked out well for us. Yet, it doesn't matter who is right, in the middle of all this, there are a bunch of people who are fearful or don't want to live in their homes. Let's let's move away from the economic migrants. Let's just deal with the people who want to leave Iraq because the country is a basket case since the US war. Or let's talk about the people who've left Somalia, which is a very dangerous country. Or let's talk about the people who've left maybe uh, Burundi. Or just all these different countries. Whoever's right about their economic argument, there is a group of people here that were all stuck on the border between Greece and Turkey, living in a field where women have no access to sanitary products. They've got babies they're feeding they're all living on one or two meals handed out a day they're trying to leave a country that doesn't want them trying to get into another country that is firing tear gas at them but these are just people right and, I, and that's the point i'm trying to get to i wanted to make films about people just the, the real struggles that pimp, some people will go through but what i found is it doesn't matter where i go nathaniel the, the pattern is the same and and the stories are the same in that there's this ongoing battle of left v right rich v, v poor and it, and this is where I end up questioning some of the libertarian stuff, or you know, when people say Bitcoin fixes this, because I don't believe in every single scenario Bitcoin does fix everything. Um, there is certainly a situation right now where, if there is too much inequality and too much corruption, you will see uh, the the poorer poorer people tend to rise up, who tend to be a little bit more left wing because. They tend to look at the world and say it's a bit unfair it's a bit unfair because because we're poor we don't have healthcare and we can't we don't have education so we think that should be provided because that's how they feel and we somehow got to try and find a way of getting this balance right because if if we continue to have unequal societies it doesn't matter what you politically think is right here it doesn't matter if you think these people are socialists and socialism is bad you are still going to have violent uprisings and people are still going to die and and i'm seeing this pattern the same argument it doesn't matter if i'm in santiago chile in venezuela or in or in san francisco you've got the same problem of inequality leading to problems and you've got people feeling left left out by society or feeling that it's just a bit unfair because of because all the leaders are corrupt and and you know what are they meant to have and that pattern i'm seeing everywhere like everywhere i go and it's just a different story told in a different way in venezuela it is because maduro is uh, uh, essentially a ruthless dictator who took over from chavez who himself slipped into authoritarianism after his social program started to fail but you've still got a rich fee poor corruption problem there it's the same in chile and i think i think we have very similar situations in Europe and the US and I, I i don't know it's just it's what i'm seeing everywhere oh and i think that the sorry um, t- t- sorry I've, I've gone on there a bit and uh, I, I, I don't i can't fully articulate it always because i'm still trying to figure it out in my head but you also ask how how does what's happening now recontextualize that i'm not sure it does but but what i what i'm expecting is those situations or those countries with the highest inequality, and the poorest countries, are going to suffer even worse through this situation. Because what's going to happen is their health care systems are going to be overrun quicker. They're going to have um, higher numbers of people who can't get access to the health care system. They're going to have people whose health is might maybe slightly worse because because the, those who are poorer attend tend to have poorer health generally. And I know it's a massive generalisation, and. Ultimately, I think in all of these situations, the more wealthy you are, the more wealthy you are, the easier coronavirus is going to be for you to survive, because you're going to be able to get food, you're going to be able to get access to health, and I just think it's going to disproportionately affect poorer people, so if, if, if anything, that's what I'm observing.
1: So in 2010, Haiti had uh, the huge, it was a magnitude 7.0 earthquake yep. that was hugely devastating, right? And the reason that an earthquake like that is so much more devastating for Haiti than it would be in, say, San Francisco now, right? Mm-hmm. Who's due for one, is that what kills in an earthquake isn't uh, the earth shaking, it's buildings falling down and fires starting, right? And in a place where there is uh, immense infrastructure, even even if you're dealing with the same same magnitude of earthquake, two wildly different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I tend to agree that my fear with uh, with one of my fears geopolitically with the coronavirus is that like I just saw that there was a big increase in South Africa um, overnight, and uh, you know South Africa is more uh, has more infrastructure than most parts of the continent, but it's still uh, it's not most of Europe, right? It's certainly not Lombardy, Italy, which has one of the best health systems you know, in the world. Um, it, is, uh, it is a very different thing. And I think that if the, if the equivalent of buildings falling down in this case is the health system uh, coming under more pressure than it can. And the ripple effects, not just from people who die from coronavirus, but other mm-hmm. people who can't get treatment for other things, you know, the, the death rate doesn't stop because of coronavirus, you know, the birth rate doesn't stop because of coronavirus. Um, I think it, it it does have the potential to disproportionately uh, impact people. And I think that what you're feeling and seeing around the world, certainly I, I've observed this as well, like one of the so, uh, the reason that I thought that I was going to go spend my life doing conflict or post uh, post conflict reconstruction was the the jarring uh, disconnect between the feeling that everything was fine in the '90s and the Cold War was over and it was great, and the fact that it was it was the bloodiest decade since the '40s when it comes to violent conflict, right? Um, in terms of numbers of people who were actually killed and how, how like how could those those two narratives didn't like exist. Right. But most of the world post post-Soviet war has been in this very we are in a very weird liminal in between scenario and have been for a while. And the challenge is that and going back to your left versus right point, um, the, the problem in situations of desperation and inequality is power and power seizes whatever narrative works based on that you know what what does what does left authoritarianism and socialist fascism how does that look practically different than than right authoritarianism and and fascism the answer is that it, it doesn't really it's just what's the narrative that's useful on on the way and uh and i think again having that sort of uh having that sort of nuance and the ability to um the ability to speak in those terms rather than just throw around. I mean, the problem is that we've we've almost uh, we've lionized political words, right? We've made them capitals instead of lower cases. And they come with a preset of ex, uh, expectations that limit our ability to understand. Right. It's it's easier to write off uh, a, a, a an entire country for being socialist than understanding the context in which people lived that made. Uh, ceding authority to people over their lives like most people want to live their lives uninterrupted this was my experience and i you know so my my formative years were spent basically between the middle east and in east africa and the the number one thing over and over again is that if you get into people that have lived with conflict for a long time they don't speak in these same uh generic political terms they speak in terms of you know what allows them to to live and move on with their lives, right? And that's that can be a dangerous situation. That's why Mubarak was in power in Egypt for 25 years, is that he was unbelievably good at. More or less, people were fine. They just didn't have autonomy over this one part of their life, right? I was in Egypt when George Bush was elected, and uh, and you know I was in a program basically because I was uh, I was studying there. We had two two types of kids, like the lefty save the world kids, and the going into the CIA got to study my enemy while I learn Arabic kids and uh and all of us were friends because we're human beings and human beings can be friends with people who disagree even though the 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 media tells us differently now and uh, on the way home we had gotten a hotel suite to watch the election results people couldn't believe that this guy was going to get elected again and and he did obviously and uh and it was really really late we we saw those results at like 4 a.m or 5 a.m we were taking a cab home and the taxi driver was going out of his way to to Tell us that he understood that we didn't have any control over this, and not to feel bad. Meanwhile, we actually did, right? But the the experience of uh, of having any actual hand in electing your leader was so foreign to them. And now, this is obviously this is seven years before Tahrir Square and and uh, and the, the Arab Spring, um, so it's different. It changed uh, a little bit, although you know the the legacy of that is still playing out. But the, the, the point of this is to say that everywhere I've ever been, what people care most about is, do I get to live my life? Am I scared for my kids? Like full stop and everything else. And that's why, that's the, the danger in that comes when people can come with promises and say, "cede this authority, see this control to me and I will give you more of that, you know?
7: Yeah, I think the, I mean, I don't wanna say the one good thing that could come out of this. What I hope is when we come out of this, I think we've got two choices, right? As p- people, nations, politicians, we've got a chance to, to reassess how we got here and the mistakes we've made and try and, and, try and learn from this and, and have a better world, or it just gets worse. My fear is we'll get, it'll, it will actually get worse. We'll, but, but can we learn from this? Because I'm disenfranchised from the political process because it's so divisive it's like you either agree with me or you agree with everything they agree with and and you're bad i didn't vote in the election because i couldn't vote for either boris or Corbyn because they were they were just so so poles apart but there were so many things in the world i'm i'm also questioning and i think as a, as a parent you question it more especially as your kids can ask questions yeah and 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 you can influence them like i my son says things now that he only says because he's my son. Like when the government recently, a few days ago, announced their massive spending plans, he was like, but dad, if they keep printing money like that, it just, the money's going to be worth less, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you buy more Bitcoin. Like that's all come from him, him hearing me talk about it. But it also makes me realize that if I talk to him about politics, I can really influence him. If I just sit there and say, you know, you need to be conservative, and the conservatives are better because they focus more on hard work, whereas the uh, Labour are more socialist and they want to help everyone and make everyone's lives easy, he's going to come out thinking, potentially, that poor people are lazy, and we should stop helping them, and, and, and that worries me as well. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really articulate, this is the kind of thing I, I wish I'd had some time to articulate and think about exactly what I wanted to say, but... All I know is is that if I used to have a certain way of viewing the world when I used to sit on my couch, sit at home, and live in Bedford, and follow the news and talk to my friends, and I would I would pick almost pick a side like a football team that I would want to be on, and now as I've travelled the world and met, I've been so fortunate to do this. I've met so many amazing people and people in difficult situations. I, I don't now. I don't want to be on a side because I realise most of the time the side you're on, is a lot of it's got to do with where you were born. You know, the the fortune of being born in a country like the UK versus being born in Iraq, I don't know, pre Gulf War two. I mean, that's what a fortunate position to be in. And a lot of what we have is just down to just pure luck and chance. And I think we're in a world now where we've got too much about I want and me and focus on me and not enough about not enough about the empathy for others and enough regard for human life enough regard for the really shitty situations people have to live through god i'm probably sounding like a really soft left wing <laughs> liberal now and i'm not i, I mean but.
1: but isn't but isn't that but isn't that a problem when wanting to encourage like empathy and understanding the lived experience of people is relegated to one side or another, by the way, that used yep. to be a small C conservative position. If you, if you look back, right, like historically before the, you know, whatever, that, that was a traditionally conservative position, you know? Uh, so th- this is the problem is that these things, they, there is inherently a dynamic between uh leaders and the people who need to back them where it's it's a it's a process of narrative making and and freeing yourself from that and i think there's a there's a liberation to existing in a way where you're not afraid to not know things and you're not afraid to change your opinion and unfortunately nothing nothing in society really rewards you for that but I, I, I'm, I'm interested, at least, and part of the reason that I spend so much time creating these media spaces is, like, I feel like I had a, uh, a choice uh, when it comes to the crypto space or political space or whatever. Like, it is very clear the path to engagement is... Picking a tribe always, and just being the best at shouting that tribe's message. And this is all. By the way, this is not a Bitcoin or Ethereum thing, although that it plays out a little bit like that. But honestly, crypto is I think light years ahead of most industries when it comes to this stuff. It just feels intense because we're in it. But like, if you think like left versus right identity politics and shit makes Bitcoiners versus Ethereum kids look like absolutely nothing. And you know, for 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 me though, like I was, I, I, I you know, I, I just I am firmly committed to this, uh, to creating spaces where you get to say like, this is is my incredibly strong, intense opinion based on what I know now. But if you got something else, whether it's new facts or a new way of looking at things, like bring it on. And I'm not scared of that conversation because you disagreeing doesn't fuck with who I am. It doesn't hurt my soul. It it is an interesting thing where maybe I'll learn from that, you know, or maybe I'll think you're terrible and, you know,
7: But you're just talking about the Roger Ailes playbook, right? Fox News, Roger Ailes, when, when he came in and he formed Fox News. Yeah, you know, his strategy, he said, let's just be conservative. Let's uh-huh. be conservative. Let's focus on Republican issues. And then we get 60% of the population. Because you know, if, if, we, if, if we do what CNN is doing and you know, MSNBC is doing, then we're fighting for the same audience. We can have all of this audience. And, and therefore, and Fox News, for me it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment of a TV channel because it is never impartial in any way at all about any decision of Trump or the Republicans. It can never step back and go, do you know what, this is wrong. We shouldn't be speaking like this or, or, or these kinds of policies are wrong. It's every single thing he does, they support and that, for me, is a really sad reflection on the world because what it does, it does divide us all, and it puts us all in separate camps of hate. You know, it's not—it's not what are the what are the what are the reasons that Trump should be president ahead of Joe Biden? What what can he do better? What what can we learn from it? No, let's hate Joe, Sleepy Joe. Let's let's humiliate him. Let's really fucking humiliate him, and and and, and let's create hate for liberals. And let's get the liberals. And by the way, they do it the other way. And let's get the liberals hate the conservatives. Let's all just fucking hate each other. and and go to war and then want to win our election and then for four years we're just going to laugh at you and create memes about you honestly it's not it's not how i want to live in the world anymore that in some ways is why i'm rejecting politics and and stepping away from it or i'm setting this new standard what i expect from politicians and you're right you know we're in the content space i could very easily be a bitcoiner who's like i'm bitcoin and i'm bitcoin only fuck the state, i'm all about freedom civil liberties but i can't do that because you know i firstly not everyone I, I don't believe anarcho-capitalism i'm not i'm not i'm not convinced that creates a better world a nicer world or a safer world it potentially creates a crazier world where it's all for himself and everyone has to own a gun and i don't want guns in the uk i just don't i, I, I appreciate why you have them in the us and i've, I've come to learn about it but I, I don't want that situation so i don't know i i, I I tend to get in a lot of fights or shout out a lot on Twitter because I don't follow the Bitcoin narrative all the time. I don't. I just don't always agree with everything. Uh, th- this kind of this kind of narrative where where you have to be this anarcho-capitalist. I think you've got. I think it's immature actually, and I think it's impractical. I think it's much more mature to just try and say, look, we do live in a world with a state. How do we make it better? Like what Eric Voorhees said to me when I said about I can't see this world of libertarianism. He said we well, don't need to. The starting point is less government let's just try and have five percent less government and see where we get and then another five percent and does that make the world and, and that I, I think that's a much more mature and practical place to go but just to sit there and you know we're gonna have the armies on the streets in the uk probably within a week i don't want to just go it's just bad because it's authoritarianism but i want to just have a fair debate and say hold on is this a good thing could this actually save lives and can we retract from it and 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 will this be a good short term measure? And 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 that's something I'm really struggling with right now because, of, and if anything, people are going to go, "Oh, you're a snowflake, or you've got no bollocks. You're not going to, you're not, you're not really willing to take a side. You're just sitting on the fence." And I don't think it's that I'm sitting on the fence. I think I'm genuinely concerned about how we've got to where we've got to, and and how we debate these issues. And yeah, <laughs> funny times, man. I, I, yeah,
1: I, I also. It's it's you know it's weird times. I mean that I like. I am, uh, I'm like, um, unfortunately, the question I ask uh, every person I've had on for the last couple of weeks has been, you know, uh, where are you kind of in an optimism or pessimism cycle? And for me, you know, my answer is, um, I'm, I, I like the. The short-term optimism is that like at least literally this is we're at the end of the first week where everyone was acknowledging this is a real thing, right? It's literally been only we have one full week on yeah. on our on our docket of, of actually acknowledging it. That's short-term optimistic. Short-term pessimistic is that I, I think that it's I think that we're accepting we're in the acceptance phase that there's going to be some disruption we haven't yet accepted for how long it's going to be disrupted. And we haven't probably really dealt with the economic ramifications for, for just regular people, not just stock markets. And I also think that we haven't even begun to ex- experience or understand the, the long term geo, uh, geopolitical issues that come out of this. Uh, if there is a, a cause for some amount of long term optimism, it's that when you have, when the world gets turned upside down, you can either reconstruct it exactly as it was, or you can try to find new narratives, new stories, new tribes, new ways to organize tribes that don't match the old way of thinking. And, you know, it's it's not a nothing signal. I actually, I joked on Twitter this morning. I said, one of my top five thoughts during this crisis is, wait, I agree with who? Uh, and it was actually in the context of Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson going hard on uh, on Burr and Kelly Loeffler and a couple others about the potential that they use privilege information about uh, to, to get out of the stock market, you know, when did they were Kelly, publicly talking.
7: Did Kelly do it as well? She's
1: been... She's been fighting fighting for her whole life. This is a very complicated... Whoa. So here's the nuanced side. Immensely complicated question because you have to figure out, like, does she actually have any control over her money? And it, there's a much larger question about how politics should deal with having assets that are outside the market because politicians are going to have advanced information on almost like every always. scenario. Yeah. S- secondly, secondly, like, look back at all of our conversations on Bitcoin Twitter since the end of January. It wasn't like this was only politicians who knew how bad this thing could be. Yeah, we yeah, all yeah. made decisions in our personal finances. So... Those are the sides that are kind of like it's overblown and people are looking for someone to blame. And I do think people are looking for someone to be angry on the flip side and why people are angry. And I believe legitimately angry is that when you spend uh, six weeks telling people publicly that it's just the flu and that it's nothing and that we're doing a great job and it's all contained and it's not a thing to worry about and keep going to work and then meanwhile you are making an entirely different set of decisions for your life if that's actually the case that's just it's it's not just hypocrisy it's lying and in the and, and underlying all of this is the endangerment of the public right which is I think is the, for me the biggest issue like mm. I don't care that uh, three million dollars was moved uh, although I think it is a little a little fucked and hypocritical, what I care about is that you spent six weeks endangering the lives of people. Because I just heard from a friend that they lost their ninety-nine year old grandmother because she couldn't get in, and maybe that would have happened no matter what. But if we'd started building, you know, field hospitals and gotten ventilators and all the sort of things that we needed six weeks ago, like maybe it wouldn't. And so I think. Uh, but but anyways, like I said, two people who I basically disagree with on almost everything, Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, hmm. uh, were both very uh, like hardcore about this, you know. Now I don't pay attention to them enough to know if they have other beef with these people, and this is just a convenient media thing, either. So it's not so much that I'm like, go those guys now, you know. Although you're, you know, you you had some uh, some interesting things to say about about Ben Shapiro at least. It's more just that I think that living in a world where you're not going to cut off something that someone says because you think in advance that you don't agree with them is a, is a weirdly healthy place to be. uh, I think if one that is also uh, can feel destabilizing sometimes because you're out of the, out of the path. So I don't know how to uh, as we reconstruct and re-architect the new world, which I I do believe that this is like a fucking forest fire for, uh, for us. Um, But, i i i hope that we can my my fear is that it just does the same thing that happens in power vacuums which is authoritarianism yeah. my hope is that we have a a chance to kind of organize it differently
7: yeah i think that's a really good place to to end it to be honest because i don't want to add to that yeah. I, think, I think you've just given a summary that and I, I, you've kind of rearticulated my point that is and I, I'm just going to repeat what you said earlier. Is I think it's with I think it's only natural that we're going to see an overreach of the government right now, right now, and we're going to see this globally. And back to what you said is how do they retract from that position? Because it might be hard for them through the temptations of power and corruption. But rather than try and fight what they're doing now, because we can't, how do we? How do we make it vocal? How do we ensure, as we come out the back end of this, that we don't lose our civil liberties? Because if they if they're using our phones to track us right now, because on the track the movement of the virus, fine, it's not that I like it, but if it happens, it happens. How do we ensure when we come out the back of this that they don't continue doing that? And and that's you've re, you've actually shifted my thinking here. In that that's that's almost where I think my my personal focus would be is acceptance of what's going to happen. Cause I can't change it but what we can do is influence how we come out of this
1: that's kind of where I am yeah I don't know if we can but I, I yeah it's a, uh, you know when the
7: when the going gets weird the weird turn pro
8: so
1: yeah
7: you know <laughs> well well dude listen it's always a pleasure we should do this more often I don't know why we don't we should talk more often yeah I always enjoy our conversations you make me rethink things you make me reconsider my firmly held position sometimes and uh, <laughs> <laughs> look it's a strange world all i'm going to say to you is i say to everyone stay safe bro it's um yeah, concerning times uh, stay safe in terms of personal health but also mental health i think somebody i, I won't name them because they might not have want me to say it but somebody also shifted my thinking yesterday they said why hasn't anyone talked about the mental health impacts of this at a level where we need to come to an acceptance. We are going to see a higher level of suicide through this Mm -hmm. process. It's only natural that that will happen. We have suicide rates. The suicide rate is almost certainly going to go up through this as people face very, very tough situations. Um, so that's something we need to be aware of, but just as a friend, just stay safe, stay, stay healthy and stay mentally healthy and, and everyone listening, um, anyone is struggling my dms are always open i'm my phone's always available if someone wants to talk and if i can help in any way please let me know um but yeah stay safe bro you too man thanks dude i'm in it, i'm in it. hold on what am i doing i'm concluding your interview like this is mine i felt like this is the end of my
1: <laughs>
8: no i like it i like it you, interview that's what happens you put two podcasters in a room what happens right? yeah